The views and opinions expressed on Red Planet are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect those of Red Planet nor any affiliated or related entities. This podcast is provided for educational purposes only. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Red Planet. This week we're joined by Michael Lawfer of Four Thieves Vinegar Collective, an organization dedicated to medical access by developing DIY methods that empower people to treat themselves. We also learned about an Israeli campaign to poison Palestinian land, the latest indignity performed by cops in Atlanta, and unionizing cannabis workers. But first, Sophie would like to dispel a myth. So there's a popular misconception, I think, because I've, I've had a few friends tell me this, um, and infinite Reddit guys discussing this, but like, uh, people are going around and saying that the temperature of the air heated to the, the temperature of the surface of the sun um, as the sub was imploding. And apparently, uh, it imploded too fast for that to happen. Like, sure, oh, it so could have. But it, it just but it it didn't just, actually well, get there. Just oh, it's gone. fine, dude. Instantaneously <laughs> gone, yeah. Literally vaporized. Also, it was a submersible, not a submarine. This is also very important that people understand oh. the distinction. But Kira, both of those words start with sub. This you is can't, true. You can't. Yeah, what's it? Where's people... the dumb marines? <laughs> oh God. Submersible. The questions <laughs> we all need answering. It's Red Planet. Look at the show. It's happening right here. Welcome, everyone. I'm gonna start off. I'm taking control because. Because he's a Dom Marine. I'm a Dom Marine, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I was going to say that and then think like, oh, it sounds too much like a cringe military thing. Never mind. Um, oh, anyway, it's cringe. Don't worry. It's mm, definitely it's cringe. Very it's very whatever cringe. it is, it's cringe. Sophie, what's the base, most base thing you did this week? Jesus, I was hoping I'd be la I'm last every week and I was like, I'm going to have time to think about it. Um, <laughs> I was going to go, uh, I was going to go to an organizing meeting uh, today about some important community organizing stuff that I can't talk about because of OPSEC, but like I... I did not because it was warm and I wanted to sit in the park and write in my book. So uh, that's not very uh, rising transsexual Lenin of me, uh, but uh, maybe next time I will have a more base thing to do. Uh, <laughs> but what about Kira? What wasn't this base thing you did this week? Oh, well, thank you for asking, uh, Sophie. Well, as I've been telling y'all uh, a few times, um, I've been planning this fundraiser with uh, my friend Bellamy and I want to make this announcement right now. It's July 1st, so less than a week from today. So this upcoming Saturday, uh, we're planning a fundraiser for uh, a black trans man living in the deep South. His name's Rael. And he was instrumental in creating tools of, uh, of um, detecting and um, collecting, you know, data on disinformation and tracking the emergence of Gamergate, um, but hasn't really uh, gotten any of the uh, support or compensation that his white counterparts have. And by the way, it's good that people get compensated for doing research on, on fascism, right? This is a good thing. But we also want to make sure that our Black trans comrades, especially, um, yeah, our Black trans comrades can uh, also receive support when they're putting themselves out there and doing fuck tons of work that a lot of these tools are still used today. So um, this Saturday on my channel, twitch.tv slash Kira Chats, uh, we will be hosting that fundraiser. We're trying to raise 10K in one day for Rael so that he can get out of the deep South, which is extremely unsafe for black trans people and uh, get him to a safer, relatively safer state 
in America and to um, also allow him to, you know, stop treading water and actually start doing the things that he wants to do. So um, I'm really excited for that. We're going to have all sorts of amazing guests coming, uh, including lots of uh, your faves like FD Signifier, Jesse Gender, uh, Inuendo Studios, Mexi, lots of wonderful people. So uh, make sure, like tons of people. Um, and we also might be hosting uh, these, we're, we're toying with the idea. And if y'all have any suggestions on topics, let me know. But we're toying with the idea of doing some bullshit debates. Like not like we're going to make a mockery of like the debate stuff, but like, you know, not debating human rights, but debating garbage. So um, if you have any garbage topics, you know, something that is infinitely kind of like, there's no right answer, no one's feelings get hurt, but you can have like a lively kind of like squabble over it uh please let me know uh what if you have any suggestions but yeah that's what we've been planning and so very excited for that this saturday on twitch.tv slash kira chats and also other channels we're going to encourage our guests to be simulcasting as well so um yeah you might it's always their channels that you could possibly pop into so but mule my good yes. friend mule i want to know what you've been up to because you're my friend and i love you what What's the most base thing you've done this week? I love you too. I'm also your friend. And thank you for that. The, <laughs> uh, <laughs> this week, um, despite being extremely exhausted um, and mentally unwell for various reasons uh, other than normal, um, I went down with the union to one of our funders uh, down in London. Unfortunately, uh, a day so jam-packed that I didn't have time to even tell my sweet London friend Sophie that I was even there. Um, and we wouldn't have had fucking time to meet for a coffee anyway, sadly, because there was just so much going on. Uh, we basically, yeah, um, went down there and I had an awful night's sleep because we got there the night before and we're staying in the center of London and it's very, very loud and very, very hot and just awful. So yeah, we, uh, very, very tired mule headed over to, uh, it's like a, a big building. I can't remember what it's called. Um, but yeah, one of, one of the funders for GMTU is the Nationwide Foundation, uh, which is very interesting because Nationwide is a building society, ergo a bank that gives people mortgages and buy to let mortgages for, for one um and they have this sort of foundation that's that's attached to that where they're like right well uh you know we're, we're gonna be a grant fund and we're gonna give people um all these like you know for this like millions of pounds millions of pounds to do like awesome activism surrounding housing and stuff like that um so obviously there was a lot of corporate fluff um i don't think i will be jeopardizing the uh union's funding uh to say that um but other than that, I think one of the best things from the day was, yeah, just like basically meeting other people who have housing at the heart of, of what they desire uh, to, to change in the world. And, you know, it's very funny because there's definitely like a lot of liberals, like a lot of lib sort of ideas around housing. Like it was very funny because like some of the organizers of, of the event were talking about how like that, you know, they were doing some deep thinking and that's the that's literally a quote they were saying they were doing some deep thinking about how we can change systems. Um, but I don't know how deep that thinking was because none of them came up with the conclusion of communism and or anarchism um so deep thinking is is not what i would call it personally um however you know they're trying they're trying so you know anyway um it was quite funny actually because i was speaking to someone in the oh what's it called i was actually speaking to the ceo i didn't even know it was the ceo of uh towns 
and council's planning authority, whatever that is, whatever that does. I think these are people that actually like, um, they like give people uh, who are like building these like big developments and stuff like that. You know, the people that we're actively like trying to like stop in in some regards, like building these like massive, uh, you know, unaffordable, badly developed housing sort of things. Um, I was speaking to her about uh, food empowerment, you know, stuff like this. And she was actually talking about like, oh my God, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because all the teachers are on strike and all my friends are talking about how it's awful for the kids and, you know, they need to get off strike and what are they doing? And, but at the end of the day, they should just pay them more. And I was like, that's not something I ever thought I'd hear come out of the mouth of a CEO. I wonder if she pays her staff more, but Anyway, conversation for another day. Like I say, it was a very interesting day. Uh, very, very weird, um, you know, sort of like talking with a lot of establishment people, a lot of liberals, a lot of people like trapped in the mindset of like, we need to appeal to politicians. And, you know, we're just sat there going, no, you don't. You don't do, you don't have to do that. Like you could do that to an extent, but you don't, it's not the be all and end all. There were some other radical, um, housing activists there though. Um, and what was quite funny was there was someone there from the citizens advice, uh, bureau. So, um, citizens advice bureau, if you, if you're not aware, I think, uh, Sophie, you probably correct me on this, but I think it used to be government funded. I think it used to be like in public hands, citizen advice bureau. I actually don't know the history of it. No, but well, well regardless, now it's kind of not connected. So they get funding from the nationwide. Maybe it's been partly privatized. I wouldn't be surprised that the Tories privatize everything. Um, but uh, I was speaking to someone from Citizens Advice Bureau who was very, very interested in the kind of activism that like Tenants Union does. Um, and she was going, oh my God, yeah, you guys are on the ground. You're doing all the hard stuff and blah, 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 blah. And I said to her, I was like, funnily enough, a lot of what we do is just going to you guys' website and telling people the advice that's on there. <laughs> it's like the Citizens Advice Bureau is literally like that. It, it, it's like it helps people know their rights and stuff. Obviously, we take that and we turn it into direct action. But like, yeah, a lot, a lot of it is just telling people what their rights are in there. So it was quite a, a funny interaction. Uh, but yeah, that was the most base thing I did this week. Um, Tim. What's going on? What did you do? What's happening? Um, ooh, the most base thing that I did this week, I was just uh, talking to Soph about this before the stream, is probably um, there was a couple books that um, that our guests today had recommended that um, that we, you know, if we wanted to, we could check out beforehand, uh, might aid the discussion. And one of them in particular that I read was called A Woman's Book of Choices. And it slaps extremely hard. And in the book, it it recommends, you know, like make copies of this, send it to people, this kind of stuff. And I I did that a lot this week, just uh, sending. Uh, it's on the Internet Archive. You can look it up, A Woman's Book of Choices. And it just like, it slaps extremely hard. It's um from the early 90s. It's a book about... Um, like uh, reproductive health care and kind of like so it's um it's yeah it's kind of inseparable from being like this you know like a political manifesto as well as like a home healthcare kind of book but it's it's very it's um it's very conscious to say like this is not uh like a recipe book or instructions to follow but this is a book of the experiences of women and things that they have done 
and we are just reporting on what they have done and explaining it in great detail, um, providing political and historical context at every step. And um, and it's really amazing. Um, it's, yeah, just about how um, various groups over time have kind of like taken their healthcare into their own hands, particularly with a focus on like birth control, like um, kind of like home uh, abortions and other you other what other methods of uh like pregnancy termination and stuff and how this was like you know like a this was uh I think the book came out after Roe versus Wade was passed but most of the information in it kind of predates that and they talk about um a lot of uh networks and things that um that a lot of that these uh, feminist groups were setting up to make sure that people had access to abortions and it and it goes from you know the very unsafe stuff through to the more um commonly accepted safe stuff and outlines absolutely everything they were doing from the actual methods themselves and how they learned them from doctors and herbalists and everything like that through to um like explaining different things like um everything from like the legal side of things um how to how these women were like protecting themselves from the law various court cases and everything through to um like things like friendship groups and how they were kind of um using these like close networks to protect themselves to protect the women that were coming to them and also to protect themselves legally as well um yeah there's a lot of really really interesting stuff in there um, reading it i thought the thing it reminded me of most is like zines that are in print but i don't think are online that i've yeah. like read bits of uh made by trans women for trans women talking yeah. about like yeah like organizing and mutual yeah. aid structures and especially diy hrt yeah exactly that's what i was thinking when i was uh when i was reading it i was thinking about like how similar this is to um you know like uh trans communities doing diy hrt it's yeah. like very very I, similar the structure to me it's of like, friendship groups yeah and structures exactly it's like the it's like the like if you're not surprised to find that like a union looks mostly the same between workplaces it's like yeah like a fight for bodily autonomy looks mostly the same yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's like the key thing. One thing that I really liked that they mentioned was um, there was, um, and it came up in a court case was that they, so through this this entire process where they were like constantly learning about things, they were, um, this, it, it focuses a lot on um, the menstrual extraction process of, um, of birth control. And so they were all learning about this thing and they were all practicing it on each other to the point that all of them were very good at this thing and they would perform it together in groups. So then I think there was a court case that came up where they were like, they, they needed like, um, part of it was they needed someone to be the expert for the court case to persecute them in that way, um, you know, to, well, to prosecute them or whatever. But they were able to say like, actually, there was no expert. We were a group of people. Like there's no one person that is guilty or anything. We are all equally capable and we weren't performing this under the guidance of one person, but we were performing this collectively, you know, as a group sort of thing. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Which is really Again, great. Yeah, exactly, a lot of it. exactly and totally the same thing. Like I've heard a lot of people talking about like um again to relate it back to first like uh, kind of queer analogy like i have heard a lot of people talking about ways that they want to react to like i don't know like labor being at pride this year or whatever just as i've been going around queer spaces and it's like 
uh, because you know because of like Starmer palling around with Tufts and like it just seems like stuff that is just like popping up from the same like just independently like people arriving at the same conclusions and I it, it because it had me thinking whenever I hear someone saying it like saying whatever their idea is I'm like when inevitably something happens like who will they think is guilty because literally like everyone has had the same idea at the same time like yeah yeah and it definitely I think it um yeah definitely makes it a lot harder to to prosecute people like that but also just um yeah it's it is amazing the kind of um solidarity that they formed in these groups and like how they were we re-able uh, how they were able to um kind of adapt over the time over time and stuff like that just because um yeah because a lot of these groups they just really like they were so tight-knit and they all communicated really well and they all had really good bonds so um mm -hmm. you know there are various times when groups split off or like rejoined and some of them went on to found like actual clinics and things after Robus is way went through yeah or some of them even before that they were you know setting up um you know like they were um performing procedures low-key under the guise of other things or whatever and um yeah you know and it, it's really amazing really inspiring work and it is yeah, just really. Um, Conrad's telling us that. Really we, to, to be fair, abortion is like the most of the topic today. We're talking about yeah. the book. <laughs> okay, cool. We can we'll, just we'll literally like do this in a sec. Okay, uh, we should do some news, and uh, I'm up first. Uh, I want to just <laughs> point out something that um, <laughs> I want to just point out something that uh, uh, I saw on Twitter. I, I I know my incredible journalism instinct. Uh, basically, I saw uh, mapping of the uh, uh, Canada wildfire smoke is, is is reaching across the Atlantic now. Um, so it's been detected in in Norway and it's flowing down into southern Europe now. Um, I don't want to mislead people to think because like the projection, which I think we're yeah we're seeing now, um, makes it look kind of like oh shit the the same things you know the the big orange sky over New York is now going to be over us. Uh, I don't think that's what's going to happen. Uh, the the article I found says it's talking about like. It, the same particles being detected um but i guess i just wanted to, sh to highlight it because like climate events are really big look look that's kind of scary ain't it that's they they go all the way across the ocean okay uh that's all <laughs> so next up on the docket um if our audience is familiar i'm sure they are with uh tortuguita um tortuguita is a non-binary indigenous occupier of the forest who was Killed by cops, uh, they are defending the forest uh, to try to prevent the building of Cop City, which is proposed like 90 million, which is, by the way, the price tag is going up and up and up, but proposed $90 million, uh, 85-acre police training facility to be built on Weelani uh, uh, South River Forest in Atlanta. Uh, so just to recap, on the morning of the 8th, January 18th, uh, police were executing a raid of the camp during which... A police officer was shot and body cams reveal later that this was likely by another police officer, uh, upon which police then shot and killed Tortuguita uh, by shooting them uh, at least 57 times. So then police proceeded to lie about this to the press, claiming Tortuguita shot at the police first, and therefore they had to retaliate in self-defense against Tortuguita. However, autopsy shows, and by the way, the autopsy results haven't been fully revealed, but the autopsy shows that Tortuguita had no gunpowder residue present on their body, um, didn't really have a, a firearm, although police claim they found one later, which 
no gunpowder residue, it's not their weapon. Um, and that they are most likely in a cross-legged seating position with their hands up at the time of the murder. Um, also cops, cops lie. So I think we're all pretty pretty certain of what actually happened here. Tortuguita was a nonviolent defender of the forest, um, trying to, to prevent the building of a fascist training institution and fascists being fascists, especially these particular group of fascists. Uh, the Atlanta police have been monstrously like over the top, cartoonishly fascist, murder Tortuguita and then try to pass it off as, oh, we had to because our jo jobs are so dangerous. So this uh, yesterday, Organizers plan to hold a vigil for Tortuguita um, just as the, it was supposed to be at 8.30 p.m. I think it's Tortuguita. Tortuguita. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just as the 8.30 p.m. vigil for Tortuguita was set to begin in Brownwood Park, several dozen Atlanta police officers in tactical vests, some of them were masked, swept through the park under the pretext of telling uh, the stop Cop City protesters that the park closes at 11. So just imagine this. Two and a half hours before a park closes, a whole, like effectively an army of cops in like tactical gear show up to tell you that in two and a half hours, the park will close. Like it was very clearly an intimidation effort, right? At the very least, an intimidation effort. Um, police then finish their walk through the park and return to their cruisers with organizers at their heels chanting at them to, to go away. And then the police get into, once they're in their cruisers, begin circling the vigil and openly admit to doing this for the record. So they're just they're just pieces of fucking shit fascists. <laughs> just just absolute like hot steaming garbage fascists with no shame whatsoever for the fact that they murdered Tortuguita. And now when people are trying to mourn the memory of this peaceful forest uh, protector of the forest, um, who by the way frequently would meditate in the cross-legged position. So it's not completely unheard of that Tortuguita at the time was meditating, you know, um, that now they're trying to harass people that are trying to pay res their respects to this person. Um, so Belkis Tehran, I hope I'm not butchering that too much, mother of uh, the slain force offender Tortuguita, addressed a crowd with words of encouragement, a prayer and a song after the Atlanta police disrupted the vigil. So at least they, um, at least there was, has, at least their mother was able to have at least a moment of paying respects to their uh, child. So, um, fuck cops. Just fuck cops. Just a continually despicable display by the Atlanta police, which doesn't surprise us in the least bit, but it's still disgusting to see. But Tim, Tim, can you tell me about what's going on with medical marijuana, uh, the medical marijuana dispensary? Yeah, so, um, alchemist marijuana. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, what is that? I've never heard of that. Um, anyway, Elkins Park medical marijuana dispensary workers have voted to unionize. So dispensary workers in Elkins Park, an unincorporated community just north of Philadelphia, told their bosses that they wanted to unionize on the biggest marijuana holiday of the year. I love the idea of like marijuana holidays. But um, so that was April 20th, 420, you know, as the kids, as the kids say. The company was extremely adverse to the idea of their workers unionizing, <laughs> uh, said Wendell Young, the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union president for Local 1776. Union organizers said that over the past few months, Restore Integrative Wellness Center, I love the name, Restore Integrative Wellness Center, 
hired anti-union educators to hold meetings with workers before the vote. I just love that coming from the Restore Integrative Wellness Center, you know, like with the anti-union. The the Restore Integrative Wellness Center is going to hire the Pinkertons. (laughs) Exactly, yeah, yeah. So um, workers also said that the company's top management sent an email to employees one day before the vote, pleading with them not to unionize, saying it would destroy the relationship between the employee employees and the company which is like great (laughs) exactly the union currently represents more than 1,000 cannabis workers across 20 dispensaries in pennsylvania um and so restore which is the short name of the whole thing utilized a lot of the typical scare tactics and intimidation young said they created a hostile work environment but on june 1st nearly 69 69% of workers voted to unionize the Elkins Park store. You're telling me this story is 69 and 420. It it is very bad. Unbelievable. Um, So they voted uh, out of 16 ballots cast, 11 were in favor of the union and five voted against it. There were 24 employees eligible to vote, records show. So 16 out of 24 employees and 11 uh, were in favor. So this isn't the first cannabis dispensary across the region to unionize and union leaders say it won't be the last either. Um, so especially as the industry is poised to grow in the coming year. Uh, yes, yeah, so, uh, uh, there's another story in Philadelphia about LGBTQ employees at a dispensary unionizing alleging workplace uh, discrimination. So yeah, cool. Uh, so the union president, Wendell Young, said the total compensation for unionized cannabis workers is typically about 30% higher than non-unionized workers when healthcare benefits and retirement plans are factored in. Uh, dispensary workers at Restore are expected to cross-train as janitors, security officers, inventory specialists, and retail sales cashiers for a starting wage of $17 an hour, but are often denied overtime and holiday pay, employees say. Uh, there are no sales bonuses either. Lindsay Elston is 31 years old and has a college degree and says she can't afford to give the company more of her time. They keep you at a wage where they can say that it's the highest of the industry, she said. But like I had told management, industry standard doesn't mean that it's a livable wage. There we go. So, yeah, obviously the logic there is that um, the union workers bring up their wage and then often the company kind of either has to come Pete by offering their non-union workers a little bit higher as well, or those non-union workers will just, you know, they just join the union, makes the union stronger. Um, and obviously, if that happens a lot, then it brings it up over the entire industry. Like unions are generally a net positive for the entire industry as opposed to just the union workers. So, um, you know, so hopefully they push that through, and yeah, and then uh, things get better for everyone. But Mule, what's um happening over there in uh in Russia? What's what's going on? So this is a big news story, and we got a lot of news. Uh, so I'm going to try and get through this as quickly as possible. Uh, but basically, a mercenary firm called the Wagner Group uh, attempted a coup against Vladimir Putin and Russia at large uh, this week, uh, late this week. Um, it was met by a payoff. 
Um, but the details are as follows. Uh, earlier this week, mercenaries from the Wagner Group and their leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who've been fighting for Russia in their invasion of Ukraine, uh, attempted a resistance uh, to the invasion in retaliation to a Russian missile strike hitting close to a camp that they were in charge of in occupied Ukraine. Prigozhin basically declared war on Russia's Ministry of Defense. Uh, Popular Front on Twitter reported that footage had emerged claiming to show that the Wagner Group mercenaries were taking positions outside of Russian Ministry of Defense buildings in Rostov. Uh, the mercenaries appeared to have faced relatively little resistance in their assault on the local Ministry of Defense headquarters. Um, Vladimir Putin had to, you know, get involved and and and, and say something, as as you would expect. Uh, and, you know, just standard platitudes of condemning the Wagner Group's mutiny against the Russian Ministry of Defense, calling uh, Prigozhin a, tra- a traitor and all this stuff. Um, but then footage emerged on Popular Front's Instagram and Twitter showing uh, that the Wagner Group had... Yevgeny Prigozhin was talking to Deputy Defense Minister Yunusbek Yevkrov in Rostov, uh, where Prigozhin basically threatens to both, both blockade Rostov and move towards Moscow as they talk at the local Russian Ministry of Defense headquarters. Um, footage then allegedly shows riot police raiding the Wagner Group's headquarters in St. Petersburg amidst the mercenary firm's mutiny against the Russian Ministry of Defense, something I imagine the staff at the, at the, at the headquarters was expecting for quite a while. Um, and then uh, the, the Wagner Group mercenary firm has now agreed to turn around their convoy to Moscow after a deal guaranteeing their safety was negotiated uh, by Belarus. I don't know much of the ins and outs of what the you know, the, 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 the deal that was negotiated by Belarus was about. I don't really know much about that. I didn't have time to research. I've been seeing people talking about it as effectively a right-wing protest, um, that like they're, they're mad that Russia is kind of getting, getting its ass kicked. Uh, Mm. and they're also mad that like Putin isn't, uh, even more of a fucking Nazi. Um, yeah, so it's it's also uh, popular fronts as you you already said the popular front, but their their coverage of I mean their conflict journalism in general is great, and of this in particular has been fantastic. And I think Jake Hanrahan has just started a new podcast called Sad Oligarch, which is I'm, I haven't started listening to it yet, but I'm sure it's good. Our boy is, is he does the good the good juice. Um, it's about the oligarchs who've been being assassinated, possibly with ties to the Kremlin, uh, in the last few months. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I agree. Yeah, Popular Front is uh, fantastic uh, on the ground journalism of this kind of stuff. So go check it out. Go check out the podcast, etc., etc. Big shout out. Um, but yeah, it'll be um, interesting at least to see how this develops in the future. But Sophie, you've got something to tell us uh, about oh. something that happened this week. That oh, no yeah, one, I think you know, happened. Yeah, I'm sure no one's heard about this. No, I'm no. kidding. It's the Titan. It's the Titan submersible again. Um, I haven't got many notes because it's like wow. Uh, everyone's talked this to death. So I thought I'd just read from the worst first uh, paragraph of Wikipedia. Uh, on 18th of June 2023, Titan, a submersible operated by OceanGate, an American tourism company, imploded during its descent in the North Atlantic Ocean, about 400 nautical miles off the coast of Newfoundland, uh, Canada. The submersible carrying five people was part of a tourist expedition to observe the wreck of the Titanic. Communication with Titan was lost one hour and 45 minutes into its dive to the wreck site. Authorities were alerted when it failed to resurface at a scheduled time later that day. Um, yeah, so I mean, this is this was everyone, all anyone was talking about for a couple of days. And then it turned out that they died instantaneously 
uh, and at the moment that they lost communication because apparently they heard an an implosion sound uh, at the end of the communication. So it's like, yeah, they knew. They knew the whole time. Uh, one interesting thing I saw, uh, which um, also just looking back on the Wikipedia, it says, the search area was informed by the US Navy's sonar detection of an acoustic signature consistent with an implosion around the time communications with the submersible ceased. Uh, apparently, the US Navy had a bunch of uh, like submarine detection mics uh all, all over the the ocean there uh, and hadn't told anyone uh but then when they but when a billionaire needs finding they 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 let they let on that they they had that and let everyone know uh which was really cool uh i love that the sea is under surveillance um normal planet normal planet is, is you you're listening to normal planet new new, um, new title of the show <laughs> um I don't. I don't have. I don't want to add too much more onto again something that's been talked to death. I did. I was watching Philomena Kunk, uh, who just does like a Brian Cox style complete like gibberish show. Uh, it's fantastic, and her bit about the Titanic was actually like she started calling it the Titan One C, like she'd misread the name, uh, and that just made her whole segment seem like it had accidentally predicted the Titan. Um, you can check it out on online. So yeah, uh, I think that's. I think that's all I want to say about the Titan um kira do you want to tell us about the uh the revelations in israel this week sure yeah and um our our thoughts and prayers are with the billionaires families for the record um so nyu's top center for israeli studies has uh just launched like days ago uh this jewish settlements archival project so what they're doing is they're making available to the public previously unavailable materials um like uh, Israel, Israeli records that were previously not accessible to the public. Um, so just to, just to frame this 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 particular segment, as we all know, the classic Israeli apologia is trying to portray Israel as a country that is like a liberal democracy that is in a victim of these radical terrorist Palestinians and their ag- aggressive, horrible terrorism, and that yes, there are fascist elements in Israel, but it's just these. Uh, radical right-wing is- Israelis, and it's not representative of the entirety of the institution of Israel. However, with these newly revealed records, um, uh, there's this new article by in the Haaretz that kind of completely demolishes this narrative. So um, records reveal that in the 1970s, Israel deliberately poisoned Palestinian land to clear the way for the establishment of the West Bank settlements. So um, there's this covert operation carried out by Israeli authorities, Israeli authorities, mind you, not some radical um, offshoots, not some like random group of, of, of right-wing Israelis that the Israeli government is trying, is like, doesn't, you know, it doesn't claim. This is like the actual Israeli government in the 1970s uh, carried out this covert operation to poison agricultural land um, and in, and the water, this contaminated the soil and the water of Palestinian farmers. And the goal is to displace Palestinian communities and pave the way for the construction of the settlements uh, in the occupied West Bank. And I'm going to read uh, um, a quote right now. Uh, the first step was dispossessing residents of the nearby Palestinian village of their land under the false pretense of making it a military training zone. When the Palestinians insisted on cultivating the land, Israeli soldier, soldiers sabotaged their tools. Soldiers were later ordered to use vehicles to destroy the crops. A radical solution was employed when this failed. A crop duster spread a toxic chemical. The substance was lethal for animals and dangerous for humans. 
So the long lasting of consequences of, of these actions have like still to this day are impacting generations upon generations of Palestinians who have been denied their right to utilize their land for uh, agricultural purposes. And what's also extremely gross is that the records also reveal that uh, the Israeli prime minister at the time, Mir, I hope I'm, I hope I'm not mispronouncing, I'm horrible, Meyer, Meyer, um, urge Zionist leaders to hush on what they were doing in order to help perpetuate the, the propaganda, the PR that Israel is a liberal institution that is, you know, not actually a fascist occupation of, of Palestinian land. Um, so that's, that's pretty despicable and par, on par with exactly what we at Red Planet and I'm sure the audience, uh, their opinion of Israel. However, it's, it's, disgusting and also just to say that and the title of this particular segment that i wrote um here in our notes says i actually added as well israel is basically cardassia so if you're familiar at all with cardassia and star trek um cardassia is a is a uh, i'll go through this very quickly conrad don't worry cardassia is a um <laughs> is an alien is an alien race in the star trek universe and they're considered to be like basically a fascist race um, and so one of the things they did when they occupied Bajor, a planet of farmers, and uh, they don't have like massive weaponry, you know, they're just kind of just subsisting with on their land and just, you know, being a, a self people with self-determination. Kardashian shows up with like their massive weapons and everything, take over the planet, enslave the, the Bajorans. Um, and then when the when the Bajorans re finally revolt after like 50 years of occupation, Kardashian, upon leaving, poisons the water and the lands of Bajor to make sure that Bajorans can't actually use that land. And so Israel is Cardassia. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of um, the same thing. It's like discussing DS9 with people. I hear people like point to Cardassia and Bajor being uh, lots of different things because like mm -hmm. I think the Cardassia is a, just a really good like analysis of how an occupying force works. And that's like, I don't know. It's fascinating. Uh, this is why this is really why we want to get the audience to a watch party with uh, DS9 episodes because, like, it's it is utterly fascinating piece of political fiction. Um, yeah, but I think that like the fact that the uh, the, uh, the Israeli government seems to be taking like uh, just notes directly from like the purest possible model of like fascist occupiers. Yeah, yeah, good good stuff. All right, so uh, Tim, can you tell me about what's going on in Mexico City? I sure can. Uh, so Mexico City holds mass celebration for same-sex wedding and gender ID changes. Hundreds of same-sex couples and transgender people in Mexico City celebrated weddings and the completion of administrative processes to change their gender on Friday, in a mass ceremony a day before the city's annual Gay Pride March. Kayla Espinoza, a 38-year-old who married her partner, Vanitza Garcia, said it was very emotional to the step in to marriage after having lived together. I didn't think it would happen like this. It's very exciting. So in 2019, Mexico City became the first jurisdiction in Latin America to legalize same-sex marriage. It took until last year, however, for the rest of the country to follow suit with Ta Tama Tamaulipas becoming the final state to do so in October. Another 131 people in the capital are set to complete administrative gender change processes, the city government said. Transgender people face many hurdles when they cannot update legal documents such as ID cards to reflect their gender identity. This is actually something we spoke about last week with um, uh, in New Zealand. We've just finally got the um, the self ID kind of thing goes through, so you can 
you can just do it quite easily now. And uh, yeah, me and Steph talked about why some people might not even want to do that, you know, various kind of things. It's kind of fascinating seeing like the Imperial, like the, the most reactionary parts of the Imperial core making shit worse for everyone as if like they won't just leave. Like <laughs> the other yeah, countries yeah. are just literally becoming better places to be for trans people. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, the process, which is free in Mexico City, comes after legal reform in 2014, allowing adults to change their gender on birth certificates and electoral cards if they identify as a different gender from the one assigned at birth. So yeah, that's it. Free in Mexico City. Um, cool. Well, uh, Mule, why don't you tell us a little bit about what is happening at Harmonsworth Immigration Removal Center? Yeah, this is a another big one. I'm going to try and keep it as uh, succinct as possible. Uh, but Rivka Brown from Novara Media on Twitter was reporting today um, that detainees at Harmonsworth Immigration Removal Center have occupied the courtyard. Um, you know, just to be clear, Harmonsworth Immigration Removal Center. This is a place next to Heathrow, uh, where they basically hold people before they deport them and make all these horrific decisions, leaving people in limbo. It's a vile, vile, vile place. Um, and according to Riv Rivka, um, as far back as uh, uh, 2016, the UK's chief prisons inspector described the conditions at the IRC as desolate quoted with insect infested rooms poor ventilation and unsanitary bathrooms also said some detainees were being held for a unreasonably long time referencing a report in the guardian rivka points out that in november power cuts at the center meant it had to be closed for weeks and that detainees temporarily relocated um and fall i'm not sure what that is if that's an abbreviation for someone or something uh but and fall revealed that the cuts were a result of years of maintenance neglect so you know we're talking just complete neglect not bothered not actually you know doing any of the things that they're paid for in, in the maintenance department uh lesbians and gays support the migrants supported the occupation today saying on twitter today we went to harmonsworth and colnbrook detention centers to show solidarity with the detainees but there was another protest happening inside hundreds were protesting the center's appalling conditions we could hear protesters making noise and refusing to be silenced in the courtyard we also spoke to those inside who told us about people being denied medical care and being treated like they are less than human human this includes underage minors and those at serious risk for their physical and mental health those in inside described it to us as a human rights crisis and we agree uh this is just one in a series of protests organized by detainees at migrant migrant detention centers in the uk since the hostile environment has been deployed by the tories to serve the imperial cause white supremacist hegemony over their whatever fucking 15 year rule or whatever it is now um and we at red planet show solidarity to all detainees and migrants in their struggle and we wish them success in finding a safe healthy and luxurious place to live um but sophie Tell us about Honor Oak. Yeah, I've got some comrades of the show to talk about uh, this week. Both of these ones are in the UK. Uh, one is to do, they're both uh, trans related. One is to do with the regular conflict that's been happening at the Honor Oak pub uh, that hosts a drag event, has been targeted by uh, Turning Point UK uh, and a bunch of neo Nazis. Uh, and then a bunch of cops have been protecting the uh, fascist uh, protest rather than telling them to just move on uh, as they've become increasingly um, violent and, uh, uh, yeah, trying to 
trying to uh, threaten uh, queer and trans people there. Um, the counter protest has been getting bigger and bigger and week by, uh, sorry, rather month by month. Um, the fascists have been more laughably outnumbered every time. Uh, but this month being Pride Month, I guess the fascists decided to do something a little special and showed up early to attack people who were there uh, uh, earlier and in smaller numbers, uh, trying to smash the windows of the pub. Uh, having uh, like they, they physically attacked quite a few uh, people at the honor oak protest so quite a few comrades got hurt uh, but i think it's important to understand uh, that this is their deliberately desperate tactic they are trying to uh, escalate but in a way that they are still they still feel safe and as ever they got outnumbered once again uh, as the day went on people started having parties i think people had uh, i think i saw a grill out um people, yeah so like as ever, uh, fascists are uh, a superstitious and cowardly lot, and we just have to outnumber them and show that the community wants them to fuck off. Uh, eventually, they will. Um, but yeah, solidarity to people who were there and who are hurt. Uh, Trans Safety Network's Jess, uh, Jess Thompson, um, Jess O. Thompson, I'm sorry, uh, friend of the show, uh, uh, was uh, threatened. Um, also, uh, Ada Cable, who's been on the show before to talk about queer care, uh, was actually punched by a cop while trying to give someone first aid. Uh, so I'm gonna gonna uh, wish her well, wish her love and solidarity, and uh, A Cab as always, uh, absolute pieces of shit. Sending you love, Ada. Yeah. Also, uh, Amar, a friend of the show, who hopefully we'll have on soon because they're a very cool uh, organizer, uh, was there and got uh, arrested, but like. Uh... <laughs> let out the same day so you know things could have been worse anyway uh that's the first one the second comrades of the show piece is just a shout out for dandelion so dandelion uh here's uh highlighted by trans liberation front bristol and is a direct action group organizing um events and spaces to uh engage in harm reduction for trans people who are, who are using diy hrt um they uh yeah, they, they basically are just helping people out. They provide some free vegan food. Um, I think it's important to uh, point out stuff like this for people who are outside of London because so many trans people are kind of concentrated in London. Uh, but yeah, this is in Bristol. It's um, it's a harm reduction information center and needle exchange for people who self-medicate. And as I said, they have free vegan food. Uh, the next one's... Uh, oh no, that's they, they had one, uh, I think, on the 18th of this month. Uh, I don't know when the next one is, but yeah, that's like what people knowing about in case anyone happens to be in the Bristol area. Um, yeah, cool. It's time to talk to our, our guest. I'm very excited about our guest this week. Uh, we're talking to an anarchist chemist who uh, publishes information to help people, for example, who are in places where abortion is uh, illegal. Uh, and, and I wanted to open, uh, like to, to introduce by quoting from one of the books they recommended that we read, um, which I think it's the first guest we've had do that. And also like all of the books they recommended, I found uh, excellent. I'm sure we'll talk about it more in a second. Uh, it's just the opening of a book called um, A Woman's Book of Choices that Tim was talking about in his uh, most base this week, uh, which is actually... Um, written uh, a while ago now but but still begins uh women today are faced with two contradictory facts of life one is that the united states supreme court is but one vote away from overturning roe v wade the historic 1973 decision that legalized abortion the second is that women have always gotten abortions by any means necessary and will no doubt continue to do so regardless of cultural standards religious prohibitions regressive social movements or the law uh this week we're talking to michael lawfer 
uh welcome to the show hi there thanks for having me thanks for coming on um really excited to have you like i say you're the first guest to uh give us a reading list but uh i appreciated it because i thought they were all really really cool books um shall we begin maybe by chatting more about a woman's book of choices because tim also really enjoyed it and has been sharing it with people yeah yeah we were just talking earlier about um how impressive it is how it's like they just considered everything from so many angles um yeah definitely one of the better like um i had better examples of a book that is like um a book about politics but is like very practical and like you know like i can see it being useful to to just everyone i want to send it to everyone (laughs) yeah i of course enjoy it very much at the same time it's also really sad that a book that's decades and decades old is still the best thing that's available uh on the book market as it were that, yeah that's what i thought i was like i wonder is there an updated version is there something more modern you know but um but yeah no it doesn't doesn't appear so bizarrely not really or not that i've found there the thing about abortion books that are looking at methodologies of direct action you can count them on one hand and again most of them are from a similar era in terms of publication date there was a period of time where seemingly there was a place for that and people who wanted to do it and had the wherewithal and the means to push that sort of thing through and there, there unfortunately hasn't been much in the way of updates in, in all this time. That makes me think of also uh, another book that you recommended to us was called The Crime of Reason. And in there, uh, the author was talking about how um, like entire pathways of knowledge or like ways of reasoning about stuff uh, can be like, yeah, made illegal. And, and uh, their example or one of the examples discussed was like... Um, uh nuclear physics because like uh you know of the of the obvious kind of uh dangerous implications of like uh democratization of 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 like nuclear power or nuclear weapons um and just to to like i, I just found that fascinating i was a bit of a, like a maths geek in high school so like uh the idea of like uh uh yeah like calculations people could do that is illegal because of its uh its implications to the to the political world um well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I actually did that in Texas some years ago. I think it was 2017, but there was a uh, body modification, bodily autonomy conference that was held called Body Hacks in Austin, which, you know, Texas is not a particularly welcoming place for people who aspire to have bodily autonomy, as you know. And I, I did it on stage. I put up a slide that had that wonderful bumper sticker that says think it's not illegal yet and i pointed to it and i said this is actually not true uh and then i put up the neutron transport equation and i sort of talked through the calculation for coming up with the cross section for i think it was probably plutonium or uranium 238 i'm not sure which i did but i said and doing this calculation which is merely uncovering a fundamental fact about the structure of matter in the universe is not just a crime, not just a felony, not just a federal felony, but a capital felony. It commands the death penalty in the United States. 
Um, and luckily I wasn't executed for that, but I, I mean, I did it mostly to just exhibit how preposterous it is to talk about things like that in terms of having scientific inquiry be controlled in terms of having ideas be property and and so on yeah i think it's not totally illegal yet um <laughs> speaking of like ideas being property you also recommended us information feudalism and i'm I, i'm deliberately discussing these books because you know i feel it's they all got really really interesting ideas in them and i feel yeah. like it's the reason you recommended them to, to us is like um they together build a really good premise for discussing your work so information feudalism can you just like uh briefly tell us kind of the the idea in that or which it touches on what you were just saying sure well there were these two professors who had gotten together and sort of looked at the landscape of what was happening with the progression of intellectual property as a concept and the way that it is playing out both politically and socially and most of all economically and and it ties into what Lachlan wrote about in um, the crime of reason where there are these watershed moments that you can sort of point to in history where economics and morality come to an impasse you have this fascinating moments where you will have people who come at an issue from a moral perspective and what they will say is what's happening is wrong and very predictably the response comes well yes this is strange and it's unfortunate and it's happening for historical reasons that are based on things that don't really apply anymore however this is what our economy runs on so we just have to deal with it and in key cases, the moralists have come back and said, that's not good enough. If this is the way that our economy runs, we need a new economy. And you can go as far back as the Reformation and look at it. You can look at the Cold War and look at it. In the United States, the you know quintessential example of this was slavery saying, people can't be property. That is just fundamentally wrong. And again, the same dialogue happened where it was yeah so clear yeah we understand and 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 no this really isn't the right thing to do however this is what our economy runs on so we just have to kind of deal with it and the moralist said well that's just not good enough and the thing that i see is something very similar happening now where there are those of us who are saying ideas can't be property. Ideas belong to humanity, period. And again, this very, very predictable response comes, oh yes, that is a hackneyed idea that comes out of some ideas that happened very long ago in Europe because of certain things about trade guilds and printing presses and this, that, and the other. And, and yes, it is being abused and it doesn't work in a really optimal way. And there are people in, oh, yes, I mean, yes, yes, yes. And people are dying because they don't have access to medicines because of this. And that's all very unfortunate. However, uh, there are trillions of dollars circling the world because of this system. And we can't just, just pull the rug out from under it. Right, and exactly. There are some of us who are saying, well, that's just not good enough. That's exactly what we need to do. Um, 
so yeah, but that's the that's the sort of bridge between those that I think is really fascinating. And they point out the two of them a number of very specific cases of where these sorts of problems have come into really extreme states where you have ebooks where it would be illegal to read it aloud or the fact that somebody patented ways to swing on a swing in a public park and that <laughs> in theory you are violating somebody's patent on and that, that if, if they were to come after you, you would be liable for patent infringement. Uh, and, and patent law does vary both across the world and from country to country, uh, both, you know, in the international intellectual property laws and national ones. And the, the strangest one, the one that I find the most peculiar is that in the United States, not only are there not personal use exemptions like you have in Scandinavia and Belgium um, and, and a few other places in Europe, but even if you utilize the patent so-called as design, if you are running a research lab where you're trying to replicate the work that is outlined in a patent so that you can further the research, which theoretically is why patents are okay, you're in violation just doing that research. And so there's no way to say, oh, I'm, I'm utilizing this as design don't sue me. No, no, you are on the hook, no matter what. And, and they point out these, the, the ways that intellectual property law has metastasized into every facet of life and becomes something that makes it more and more difficult for anyone not affiliated with the might of an institution behind them to do much of anything. Mm. I really like how, like, what you're talking through is the bridge between those, like, the way you're talking about a conversation between moralists and, I guess, people who'd probably call themselves realists, but really, like, it might be more appropriate to just call them economists, like you keep on saying. I think it would be appropriate to call them apologists. Right, absolutely. I mean, that's, I mean, like, a lot of people who call themselves realists are apologists, and, like, I think that, yeah, like, their, their side, as you're pointing out, is defined by making apologia for the for the economy and just saying, like, no, the, the economy is the important thing, or other people saying, no, this is immoral. Um, and that reminds me of, like, the kind of analysis from... Um, oh, hey there, you, uh, your camera's on, cool. Um, uh, nice to see you. Um, yeah, from uh, Silvia Federici, the feminist Marxist in uh, Caliban and the Witch. Fucking love that book. Yeah, it's so fucking good. Uh, you know, we like we on the left are called moralists frequently, um, even though like a lot of our um, analysis is economic, and it's like, uh, yeah, because we ha we're we're having a, a moral uh, analysis of of history and, and not willing to just be okay with like, well, the economy relies on this, therefore, it's just interesting, like because like I think Federici's point is repeatedly that like a state needs people first and foremost and uh so states are trying you know trying to have sovereignty over like how much people are like having more having uh, making more people um and and in what ways right um which yeah like you, you, you yeah uh the way, the, the way that it ties in with uh crime of reason has me wanting to reread caliban and the witch i think we've talked enough about uh books for one second that i, I do want to get get to the other two uh more but like uh you or sorry the other, well the other one really but um we talked enough about books to talk about your work. Uh, so would you like to tell the audience what it is you actually do? So I am with the Fourth East Vinegar Collective, and we're a group that 
aims to bring medicines and medical technologies to people who need them but don't have them for whatever reason in any way we can manage. Um, the main ways that this tends to manifest are a lack of infrastructure or legality or price and price uh, links into what you were mentioning earlier, typically prices dictated by intellectual property law controls and medicinal monopolies. So most of the approaches that we take are trying to disassemble the science and present methodologies by which people can build medicines and medical technologies on their own without having to interface with medical infrastructure. And by that means you can typically bypass problems of legality and infrastructure and price. So the thing that most, like I would say if people have just kind of randomly tuned in and they, um, you know, maybe don't know you by name, the thing that they probably might have heard about is probably the EpiPencil, right? The um, Yeah, that one was well-timed. We got very lucky there where um, Heather Brash, who was the CEO of Mylan at the time, was lying in front of Congress and there was a lot of outcry about it in the in the public discourse. And yeah, we came up with a pretty slick solution where you could take a couple of off-the-shelf parts and put them together and make your own for uh, a hundredth the price, essentially. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, amazing. And yeah, it um, lines up so much with um, the, from A Woman's Book of Choices, the invention of the um, the Dallium machine, you know, like this thing that... Yeah. Is, how it was a device that could literally just be made you know uh you could they have all the parts says you go to a hardware store you get this you get this you go to a, a pet yeah. store and you buy this <laughs> well and and the truth is is that that technology still accessible and it still works and it still is worth pursuing in a lot of cases it's not as popular not as many people know about it but menstrual extraction is very effective and it, you i think people are a little hesitant to use it sometimes because there are concerns about sterile technique um but it doesn't really take a lot to understand how to not give somebody an infection yeah I actually um, was, I was reading through it and it reminded me um, my first, because I've been working in the tattoo shops since like, I think like 2004. And it reminded me so much of my, um, my body piercing apprenticeship way back in the day. And I was like, oh yeah, I actually, I already know all this stuff, but you know, like, uh, like using sterile equipment and aseptic technique and everything. Yeah. It's, um, it is something that you can teach people. Yeah. Right. And, and it's not, it's not that tricky. I think that the, most critical thing about sterile technique is the focus you need to bring to it. You need to be very aware of what you're doing, um, that you don't reach up and adjust your glasses, that now, now your hand is not sterile anymore, that you don't hand 
we always had a um even like the concept of you know like the clean hand dirty hand for like certain things and stuff like you would have like one hand that is like nothing this doesn't touch anything you know right so i've even found that like years later i still have that kind of um you know like that muscle memory when i'm doing stuff where it's like even if i'm doing something at home like cleaning the dishes or whatever like you know i'll be um, (laughs) doing it unconsciously me too it's i think it's one of those things that gets built in uh depending because there are a couple different levels of sterile technique right there's there's sterile technique for doing um you know small scale stuff there's sterile technique for like lab when you're doing microorganisms and then there's sterile technique for when you're doing surgery, right? Or, or I should say, more invasive surgery than just piercing, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have a, a sort of separate um, part of my life with uh, cyborg type people, and so we do we do experimental surgery and implantations of cybernetic devices, and that's one of these things where it's like you have to be very careful, and the rules sort of uh strictures go up where um for surgery if your hands leave your field of view they are no longer sterile and so that's like an extra an extra vigilance so our our producer hasn't put your camera on yet but i feel like the listeners to the podcast version of this deserve to know as well you're wearing like uh, a leather maybe biker jacket and you got a a t-shirt with the uh with the definition of revolutionary on it. Um, <laughs> uh, what is the definition of revolutionary on, on the show? Because I'm, I'm curious about it and how you consider your work and life in relation to it. It's kind of worn, um, uh-huh. but this was from Viper Records. Let's see if I can still read it. It says, um, involving or envisioning uh, complete uh, dismantlement and change, um, embodying... It's 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 one very down, but it's it's. I think pretty, the lower one says engaged in or promoting political revolution, and then yeah, number three uh, says me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of it's it's good that it's worn in, right? Like you know, it's like yeah. when you see um someone that has like a classic kind of leftist tone, like you know, like capital yeah. or the Congress of bread, and it's like super worn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. it wouldn't be the same if it was fresh. I didn't just buy it for the interview. I, I, I it, was just, <laughs> it was just the least dirty thing I had to wear today. <laughs> very anarchist. Very anarchist. Yeah. But yeah, do you feel? Uh, do you feel that your work is revolutionary? Is kind of the like my more serious point after praising your uh, style. <laughs> well, it aspires to be certainly um, the the work of trying to foment revolution is never complete and so to to say that a work is revolutionary is almost uh contradictory internally because that is an aspirational set of things that you undertake that never really is exhausted so we try to work toward that um direction that's the thing revolution is not it's not an end state it's uh it's it's a direction you can go it's not a place that you would ever arrive yes a vanishing point absolutely yeah and so we we try to do our level best to move things in that direction as best we can within our our little niche um 
so yes, aspirationally, I, w- I would say, uh, yeah, we're, we're trying our damnedest. Fantastic. Um, I think that when you describe your work, one thing people immediately think about is uh, what what trouble you've encountered with uh, the law when you talk explicitly about like um, getting information to people in places where it is illegal to have that information if you've like had trouble yourself like uh, not asking you for your you know uh, like criminal record or whatever but just like <laughs> what challenges have you faced in like trying to uh, do the work you do well uh, what I can say about that is that we do have a very sophisticated security team and uh, a really astute and erudite group of people who think very carefully about the management of risk and how to get as much information to as many people as possible while still making sure that uh, most of our people remain at liberty uh, it's it's all the sort of things that you hear typical anarchist groups talk about having good security culture, trying to just have, you know, you know, like sterile technique, you need to have this sort of instinct of when things are uh, infected. Anytime that you say anything to anyone at any time over a channel that's not encrypted, you must assume that that is public information that will remain in the record forever. And so practices like that, trying to be uh, cautious about um, to whom you speak and about what and, and over which channels has for the most part, kept us all pretty safe. Um, and the maxim holds that nobody nobody ever got caught by being too paranoid. And so we come across somebody who is a little more strict in their security practices than you are. You know, my advice is, you know, try not to roll your eyes too much and understand that they may have a different set of parameters and a different set of risks that you don't know about. And, and it happens to all of us. I was, uh, I was in, gosh, I shouldn't even be too specific. I was in Europe uh, the week before last, and I was having a conversation with some people about uh, the manufacturer of HRT, and they were very, very careful um, much more than I would have been given the subject of our conversation, but that was their protocol. So when you interact with somebody new, the default should always be to follow the security protocol of the person who has stricter security measures, because that way everybody's as safe as they feel they need to be. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and again, it varies from project to project and person to person. There are people like myself who are very public about our involvement in the collective. There are people who are in the collective where nobody knows their real name or where they live. Uh, and that's just necessary because of how people interface with the world. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm part of the reason I ask is because of, as you say, you are fairly public and um, what it makes me think of instantly is like, um, I know a lot of trans people who are very anxious about, um, 
more or less fascist activity in places that they live. And um, for me, the answer has always been to be plugged in with uh, anti-fascist researchers and to know, therefore, what fascists are up to. And therefore, like, I can have a reasonable uh, assessment of, of, as you say, like, risk parameters. So, like, it's, it's um, you know, I, I, I was, I was, I'm saying it because um, you're uh, public, like, I don't want to say publicity, um, publicness anyway, um, you know, speaks to a, a being plugged into security culture very well. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, I think that that caution is, uh, with good reason and it's part of my role in the organization to assume a greater level of risk than the people who do the more important work of actually doing the science and, and, and keeping things going. Um, and because I'm able to sort of shine the light uh, on myself, it it allows for more to happen in the places where it needs to in, in safer ways. Yes, this is a kind of uh, crowd response to uh, uh, panopticon theory is like if there is attention drawn into one particular spot, then it's not elsewhere. Yeah, right. You know, you, you, you start a riot in B-Wing in the prison so that, you know, people can do some things. Uh, Maybe over an H block. Yeah, no, so it's a for sure, for sure. Tale as old as time. <laughs> you did mention, uh, you know, you don't have to go into this at all about what you were doing or where you were or anything like that. But you mentioned I'm um, talking to people about, you know, the HRT thing and stuff, which is something that we have covered before, like, yes. you know, DIY HRT. We've talked about it quite a few times on the stream. Yeah. Our most more recent, our most recent uh, addressing of it was like, uh, we, we talked to someone who is, who's in a lot of research into how people manufacture it. So we can have a more detailed discussion about supply lines and so on. Yeah. I mean, we were talking, me and, um, so we're actually talking earlier about the, um, you know, like the the weird kind of parallel. Well, it's not weird. It's like the totally obvious parallels between, you know, like the, um, the stuff happening in a woman's book of choices and then the HRT, the DIY HRT thing and how it's like, you know, this like bodily autonomy movement. And we've talked a lot before about like how it seems like the conservative rights kind of, um, you know, the pushback is... It, a lot of it concerns bodily autonomy in general, you know, like whether it's, yeah, like people, um, you know, taking HRT, people, uh, you know, like with a, like the legality of abortion and all that kind of thing like that. Um, and it seems to be, it's like the same, it's like the same battleground sort of thing. But um, are there any, like what other, I guess, I guess what other frontiers have you seen or do you, have you seen any other kind of places where the similar thing is being um like the similar battle is kind of playing out because i yeah i was i was actually really struck when Soph kind of like actually brought that up to me i think it was on a stream about saying like oh yeah this is the same fight you know the reproductive thing the hrt thing it's the same thing it's bodily autonomy can i just jump into that question and say that this also relates to the last book that you recommended which we haven't talked about yet medical nemesis right um to do with uh our, our bodily autonomy being impacted by what medical practices and information belong to which uh, huge monopolists or whatever. Yeah. Like I was just wondering, like, is this, um, you know, is there some, is there another area that you see the same thing happening that perhaps me and, or, you know, the others here are ignorant to that is kind of like, uh, you know, the same struggle or whatever. Can you think of anything like that? Or? Oh yeah. Um, the problem is that unlike abortion and HRT, 
the majority of those battles have been one-sided where there hasn't been a return fight. Um, you see any number of groups which are suffering and are marginalized because of their lack of access to care and bodily autonomy in a lot of ways, a lot of different places. And there are two things about this. The first one is just that it's very sad to see that it's not a battle. It's more like just a slaughter that's happening. And then the second part is that the battle of which you speak, I find is often misunderstood in its dynamic structure. Oftentimes when people will talk about access to reproductive technology, access to gender affirming technology, that it's seen as this two-sided thing where there are people who want bodily autonomy and there are people who have some sort of belief that people shouldn't have access. When in fact, there's a third facet and it's totally asymmetric. The third group is a group that sees the group who does not believe that everyone should have access to healthcare as easily manipulated and very well organized and strong as a voter base. And they are used as a lever. And so it's very strange to, to, to see that there's sort of this, this shadow where it's, it's one thing leveraging another very opportunistically. And it's weird too, because if you look at some historic meteoric rises of politicians on the right, notably Ronald Reagan, notably some more recent uh, pontiffs of the United States whose names I shan't even utter, um, started their careers as being pro-choice because opportunistically it was the better move. And then they realized that the evangelicals were very well organized in the U.S. and formed a very strong voter base and then just decided to, you know, shift gears. Um, but to, to, to answer the meat of your question or, or the textured vegetable protein of your question um, is that, yes, the, you see it starting uh, in the diabetic communities now because it's been so critical that people are um, dying in ways that are more visible. Um, there's this strange phenomenon where if people are dying in small numbers, in unpredictable, uh, specific times and circumstances, even if it's happening consistently and regularly, it's easily ignored. And when it's happening in, it's, it's sort of the car crash versus plane crash thing. The plane crashes, everybody kind of loses their mind, even though it's only a couple hundred people, because it looks like this terrible thing that went wrong. And when instead, every month, you have tens of thousands of people who die in car accidents just in the US, and nobody seems to think that that's a problem because it's just an accident. You see similar things happening in the health realm where 
you'll have something happen where there's an outbreak of something at a hospital and everybody loses their minds or there's some form of medical malpractice or somebody makes a mistake in an operating room and somebody dies in a routine operation. It's this, this terrible tragedy. Everybody's very upset. And why isn't somebody doing something about this? And where was the regulation? And yet so many people are just sent home without any support. They get stabilized and then pushed out of urgent care or whatever it is. And, and, and that just happens. And so because the rate of death and the fact that the amount of time that somebody can survive without insulin, if they are diabetic, is on the order of hours rather than days or weeks, that suddenly this comes into the public consciousness in a way that somehow is harder to ignore. But you see this just everywhere i it's it's one of those things that once you start looking for it it's hard to not see kind of actually another group that is actually actively fighting back ironically um is the right to die movement the talk about bodily autonomy we are friends with uh, philip nishka and Exit International, and a few other groups that are working very hard to give people about the most critical piece of autonomy that you could come up with, which is life is voluntary um, and sh or should be. And there's this bizarre shadow war going on against these people from where is not entirely known and why is entirely unknown but there several years ago when was it that this started it started in 2019 in mid 2019 there were raids by interpol like tactical teams that were kicking in the doors of chronically ill octogenarians and nonagenarians taking their drugs and dragging them out of their houses and arresting them and it's still not clear at least to me maybe somebody knows but i have yet to uncover where the heat is coming from and who's pushing this agenda but it's got to be somebody because that takes budget and authority so somebody okayed that operation um so so yeah you're seeing it with diabetics you're seeing it with right to die people but i think it applies everywhere and especially in the bizarre places of dichotomy where a place is resource rich so the needed medicines are present and yet access is disallowed which always seems so strange Somehow, it's a little easier to say, okay, somebody's in a very poor country where they don't have the infrastructure to refrigerate some monoclonal antibody and get it from point A to point B so that whoever needs it can get it. Okay, the, we should be working on that. There should there are ways to fix that type of problem. But to say, there's somebody in New York City who needs a life-saving medication that is in 
any number of dozens of hospitals in the exact same city and they can't get it. Something's very, very wrong. I, I feel that it's very illustrative in a really sad way of the state of humanity when there is so much time and so many resources and so much energy and thought that's placed into inventing life-saving medications and then delivery is refused. Yeah. I mean, commodification is, uh, is perfidious and, and, and horrible. And we don't like, I like to talk about the neoliberalization of water infrastructure in India often because like most people think it's fine that they have a water bill, but why are you paying for water? Like water is, the most fundamental piece of our life and like in india um you know in poorer neighborhoods where you're less likely to be able to afford it the prices can be you know dozens or or you know yeah, yeah dozens of times as high as it is in richer neighborhoods where they definitely will be able to afford it because you can't uh make the you can't make the shakedown of charging people money for water um uh, expensive for rich people they could move neighborhood but you can for poor people and 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 that's not the only place where it's a problem and yeah it's 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 so bizarre and you see things like that and parallels of it and you know you shudder to think where else it might start showing up in terms of things that are necessary for life i mean you know sleep air uh, food you know some of these we already see starting to happen and you can only imagine that we're not the first people to think about this. And the first people who thought about it probably were not thinking in terms of trying to bring humanitarian aid, but rather, Oh, what's a, what's another rent seeking strategy that yeah. we can employ. Yeah, exactly. Bleed people out. We're already seeing this, like you mentioned, um, with like the luxury luxury air industry that's like officially, formally has now emerged with all of these, um, very much with all these like fires that are turning various parts of the or the world's skies orange and and uh, making uh causing like permanent damage to people's lungs and chronic health issues down the line. Um, rich people can go on vacation. Rich people can stay indoors in the HEPA filtered environment or go to a hotel in the HEPA filtered environment. Poor people are like working the fields. They have to leave the house. They are not, they can't, they can't afford or, or have access to means to protecting themselves. Um, not to mention that like the entire reason that the skies are turning orange is also driven by the rich and driven by, you know, capitalism. So um, yeah, it's, it's like you said, it's like, oof, I, I also shudder to think of what we will be seeing in the future because all these different like, just unthought for me unthought of horrors are emerging like a luxury air industry yeah is a bleak bleak phrase <laughs> well um well so for talking about water i saw a comment on the chat that was like something like you know what are they gonna do next like you know like something about are they gonna take the air or whatever and then like yeah. immediately starts talking about like yeah yes, it's... So that's... <laughs> it's interesting to think about those parallels too right because again you think of the things that you will die without and okay you know hunger and food commodification has been a problem for 
eternity uh, or since civilization kind of became a thing and trade was a thing in uh, agrarian society. But again, you know, okay, food, you can go without it for about a month before you die. You think about one that we haven't broached yet, which is sleep. Like you can go about 11 days before you die without sleep. You, but, and you think about water, that's about three days air uh, a few minutes tops like i'm not quite sure what the world record is there's maybe some deep sea divers who have done maybe 20 minutes or something but still you want to sh- find a way to stratify the importance it, it, it bleeds in really quickly and one of the you know to talk about sleep i think that sleep is one of the things that's not discussed enough in terms of general health and wellness but if you talk to anybody who is an athlete they will tell you that that is the secret ingredient that if you want to perform better as an athlete you need to sleep you need to have more sleep you need to have higher quality sleep and the you know in modern society we really fetishize exhaustion which is quite a crime and then on top of that there's the way that the notion of work has shifted that the idea of rest is seen as yeah to use your word care luxury not something that's really fundamental to life um and just to put some really really scary numbers down in the so-called United States, there's this very bizarre practice of so-called daylight savings time, which means that you have a clinical trial with 350 million people where twice a year for one night, they get either one hour fewer or one hour more of sleep. And if you look at the day after, Every single health metric, you see roughly a 10% shift both ways. So after having one hour less of sleep, there are roughly 10% more heart attacks the following day. There are 10% more fatal car accidents. There are 10% more cases of domestic abuse. And you can just go down the line of just about every horrific thing that you would think, yeah, if I had a bad night of sleep, I might be a little more grumpy and might be a little less attentive to important things. All of those things happen. And conversely, on the flip side, when everybody gets an extra hour more, there is roughly 10% fewer uh, heart attacks, car accidents, yada, yada, all the way down. And, uh, you know, we, we need to be nicer both to each other and ourselves. And as simplistic as that sounds, it really is, uh, I think, horribly understated. Yeah, I mean, it would actually solve an enormous amount. I have some um, personal experience of this this week. Um, so I've been kind of ill and depressed over like the last uh, four to six weeks kind of thing. Uh, one of the first things that this uh, wave of sickness did, I don't really know what it was. It was kind of like a sinus thing, but uh, it kept me up all night. 
um to the point where and and i what what you're saying michael is is so extremely validating for me it's validated my entire life because i am just a sleepy boy i will sleep for 12 hours sometimes and that's great and i love it and it's important to me that's good uh, for you always yeah i've always i've always hated like you know parents and you know partners being like i can't believe you sleep so much what's wrong with you it's like well it just feels right it's just what i am anyway um but this sickness has really fucked with my sleep um to the point where i, I was getting really well i was back in the gym this week um <clears throat> doing my lifting doing my cardio and i was feeling great about it and uh you know back to work back to streaming all this kind of stuff content creation then on wednesday i went down to london with my union uh, to do some just generic funding stuff, you know, um, <clears throat> went down there, had an awful night sleeping in London. Um, and then the next day I felt as I was, as if I was sick again, I, d I literally felt like I was completely better. And then the sickness, it came back, it came back and I had to get through this whole day just feeling like fucking garbage. Um, and then for like another two days, like an extra two days, I was ill again so yeah. this this illness had clearly oh, been like actually like a huge thing that i always tell people about getting tattooed um because people like people um will come into getting a tattoo or whatever and they'll think about like absolutely everything they need to do beforehand except for the most basic things which is basically just like get a good night's sleep beforehand and have something to eat beforehand you know and um there's it's like wow when like it doesn't happen too often, but when people pass out, vomit, piss their pants, whatever, it's because of, and you know, it's because they either haven't eaten beforehand or a lot of the time it's because they haven't had a good night's sleep beforehand, you know? And it's just like, like you wouldn't, like it is a, it's a toxic thing to do on your body or whatever. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't, I don't know, run a marathon or something without, um, without having a good night's sleep, but you'll sit there for hours in pain <laughs> without sleeping the night beforehand. And I always find that like sleeping is like a, a much huger factor than a lot of the other stuff about how someone, how well someone's going to sit while they're getting tattooed. Um, and then and people always like look at you when you, you know, if they pass out and they wake up, you ask them like, you know, have you been sleeping well lately? And they're always like, um, like, why? You know, it's like, because you passed out on my floor. Because you, you just had a little nap here. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so sleepy. Uh, Mule, it's, it's interesting you, bring, you brought up, like, going to London and sleeping worse. Because, like, I was going to say... Um, uh, the you know the the books that we uh, the books on the reading list that Michael gave us like once I saw the arguments that they pieced together and how they um, how they were cohesive I I, I really did like uh, like you were saying Michael like see it everywhere and it's funny you bring up sleep because that was one I was thinking about because um, in London um, uh, people sleep like dog shit uh, unless like a place has been specifically like in some ways improved to be uh, nicer to sleep in. And, you know, there are neighborhoods that are better to sleep in or whatever, uh, but then there are also just like more expensive places and places will be cheaper if they're like next to a busy road. Um, and th this like the same thing is true of air to bring back like the luxury thing. Like there are, there are so there's so much commodification where like, the the general option might be free or cheap but the but you know the the expensive option is still just it's like the basic requirement like the the expensive option would be to get a good night's sleep and and to be able to breathe good air and you know get clean water and all these things right yeah yeah and dj as you point out like there's no quicker way to disable the human immune system than to just deprive somebody of sleep 
it's really quick. You, you don't you don't really have to do much. And and there have been so many so many studies of of ways that lack of sleep impacts your health. You you look at just about everything. Uh, strokes go up. Uh, your sex hormones go down. Um, if you're diabetic, all of that gets worse. Uh, depression, uh, weight management, um, hypertension, and like the weakened immunity thing is something that people just don't talk about because like the the immune system is just this black box and we don't understand it very well. And it's okay, we might not understand it very well, but we do know when it fails and it fails when you don't have rest. That's one of the cases where it will for sure fail. And there's this you know, I, I like to call it uh, somnolent bulimia that people tend to have, where it's like they'll just stay up and stay up and stay up until they hit a wall and then sleep. And that's, I mean, that's not an approved technique under the Geneva Convention. If you're doing it to somebody else, why is it okay if you're doing it to yourself? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think I, I remember reading something a while back that um, I think humans are one of the only mammals that can't just die from lack of sleep because we get by on like, you know, there'll be like these little moments of micro sleep that we get that's enough not to kill us. It's not entirely true. It's very hard. It's very hard to, to kill a person because again, like the body will just go into a shutdown mode. But yeah. if you, if you, forcibly keep somebody awake for 11 days like they will just die yeah yeah because yeah, i remember reading it was like actually quite easy for a lot of other mammals just to to die from no sleep you know and like this is yeah like a thing that like you know like we um you know like it's it's kind of like a thing where it's kind of it's not taken that seriously sleeping you know where it's like oh it's it's fine you'll just be a little bit tired or whatever it's like no like there's a uh there's like one rave i regularly go to and like i'm, I'm friends with a few people who go to like a few raves regularly and um like so so this weekend i was up until like 7 a.m one of the days and um you know uh what the the next time this rave comes around is gonna be a day rave and like a lot of my friends are really hyped about it and like again like when it, because i was thinking about sleep because of these uh these, these books I, like i was like oh yeah i think i'll probably have a just a better time <laughs> like, yeah it'll be in the middle of the day and then i'll go to bed at a normal time having had fun with my friends <laughs> yeah and and the and the best if anybody's looking for healthier sleep there are a whole myriad of ways you can do this but the best trick that i know that is not something that many people talk about is that most people set the wrong alarm. Most people set an alarm in the morning to wake up. You should not be doing this. You should be setting an alarm at night saying, turn off all your stuff, turn off the lights, feed the cat, crawl into bed, and let yourself fall asleep naturally. And then you let yourself wake up naturally because, you know, there are all these like fancy apps that will theoretically find the point where you're closer to shallow sleep than the deep sleep so that you will not be as groggy and those might or might not work i don't know but what's even better is if your body just naturally wakes up on its own i i haven't set a morning alarm since like college and it was early college too because i just decided i wasn't doing it anymore um 
And if you just have a regular, and it's really easy to not, right? You know, nighttime is like, oh, we, I can just stretch it. But if you just are vigilant about going to bed at a regular time, your body just loves routine in terms of sleep. If you eat at the similar times and you go to bed at similar times, then you'll wake up. And for the last four years, because of the time zone that I lived in, I had to wake up around 530 in the morning and I never set an alarm. I was just up because I fell asleep around 930 or 10 when I felt tired and it was plenty of sleep. Um, so that's my that's my best my best trick. Uh, my favorite so things about the show about doing this show is that we find like incredibly based people and then we're like uh you can have a, a soapbox to talk about the work you do and they come on and they're like we should all sleep better and i'm like i mean listen it's one of those things where i think that for all of the work that we do regarding you know access to antiretrovirals and hepatitis c medications and uh, you know, overdose prevention technologies and, and gender affirming technologies. If I could get everybody in the world to sleep better, <laughs> it would do way more than all of the, all of the rest of it put together. Cause they could do all the rest of the, the of this stuff. Cause they uh, had some good sleep and make some smart decisions. Yeah. 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 All of, all of that. I mean, this is why we regularly include like just self-care in our uh, most based thing we've done this week segment, because like it, it just genuinely is really important, like m more important than can be stated, really. Like um, Arda Cable, who we mentioned in the news segment, because she was at the Honor Oak demo um, when she came on the show. She's from Queer Care, um, Frontline uh, Queer Protest Medics. And um, yeah, you know, uh, in a similar way, like giving her a soapbox to talk about her work, she was like, go to your union meeting, your, you know, your, your, your tenants union or whatever, and your direct action organizing and be the one who does the dishes because it's like that, this stuff to take care of each other and ourselves is like it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And uh, yeah, all of those things, it's, it's really important to note that the, the important work is often the unseen work when it, the most dangerous places in most countries are in hospitals, just probabilistically. That's where people die uh, for lots of reasons, not just because they go there when they're ill, but also it's, a, it's an easy place to become ill and so on and so forth. If you have gone to a hospital and emerged alive, you did so because the custodians did their job. Not because the doctors did their job. It's because somebody cleaned the MRSA off of your bed rail and somebody changed your sheets and tucked them in so they were tight and didn't give you bed sores. And somebody mopped the floor and threw away the sharps properly. Like all of these things that are so boring and are the most critical. Um, and yeah, and like, yeah, sleep. What, what's, what's the line from the Scottish play? The innocent sleep, the sleep that knits up the reveled sleep of care, the death of each day's life, sore labor's bath, balm of hurt minds, great nature's second course, chief nurture, and life's feast. I mean, there you go, right? 
Yeah, just be like one percent less cool would be my my main uh, takeaway. Um, does other people have <laughs> that, like, oh, oh, what, what's that line? What's that line? Yeah, like, yeah. anyone else is like memorized any Shakespeare? <laughs> oh, I, 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 you know, I, I did it as a kid, so it's it's in there. It's all. It's, it's all it's <laughs> Listen, I was yeah. impressed. I don't know what the fuck you were talking about, but I was impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I got lucky. I got lucky. It's, uh, <laughs> I just want to point out uh, during this sleep discussion that's like, I know it's been touched on, but sleep, like we're talking about accessibility to sleep and like sleep hygiene techniques. Like these are all really great. Like, and they really should be taken very seriously. And honestly, I think there's a few intersections between like patriarchy and obviously capitalism, but like with why we have such like an anti-sleep culture and why sleep is considered almost like a weak, lazy, non-tough yeah like feature or like like quality uh, or activity but but besides that um I just want to give a shout out to uh the workers that are working positions that they have they have to work that are unfortunately interfering with their sleep like not all of us have the luxury of setting alarm clocks at the times we would like to sleep you know um like graveyard shift workers like there's plenty of studies just to support uh, what you were saying, there's plenty of studies that show that graveyard workers are at increased risk for like basically like everything. <laughs> like yeah. they work overnight, their circadian rhythms are messed up. Even if they receive like quote unquote adequate amount of sleep during the daylight hours, it still ex- still puts them at an ex- increased health risk for a multitude of things. And it's just if there's any graveyard shift workers or workers that like kind of you know work later and it interferes with their sleep. Um, solidarity with you and uh oh, yeah. let, let's fucking abolish the whole system that forces people to have to be in those positions because mm, michael was saying why why do we do this to ourselves i was thinking right. yeah or, or why your boss does this to you we, we yeah. just shared a tweet on the red planet twitter a, a little bit ago um you know the, the heat wave in texas right now it's got, it's spiking like 47 degrees uh c uh, 117 fahrenheit um and you know th- there isn't any kind of like state or federal mandated like breaks for water during an official heat wave like mm. this is like uh people are being forced to destroy their bodies um and that's kind of the nature of there being one class who only have their their bodies to rent in exchange for uh capital I saw actually um, there was a really good, well, it was like a little clip um, that was, it was from a new segment down here the other night where it was like, it was interviewing like literal children, high school kids that were working um, late night shifts at places like Kmart and supermarkets and stuff like that to help, you know, their family pay the bills while also studying full-time as like high school students and doing their exams and you know getting ready for university and stuff and it was wild because they kind of had framed it like oh these kids are like such hard workers and you know like good on them being like the breadwinners and all this kind of stuff and it's like yeah absolutely they are really hard workers it's amazing and stuff but like also like this is really fucked up like this is these are children like teenagers that are because of you know the cost of living crisis sort of thing is so bad and just because of you know the way that these things work they're being forced to go out some of them were saying that they were working till like you know 2 to 4 a.m sort of thing before um you know going home and then going to bed and they're doing this on top of going to school all day and studying and all this kind of stuff and it's like yeah like the narrative is just like oh wow they're such hard workers it reminded me of um you know when uh george w bush was doing those um 
he's a uh, he had some guy up, he was doing like a Q&A thing with, you know, salt of the earth Americans. And some guy got up and was like, I have, you know, th- I work three jobs. <laughs> and George was just like, that's a good, hardworking American. That was a mother. Jesus Christ. She w- he was like, yeah, I forgot exactly what he said, but it was, it was a woman who works like three jobs. And she was like, kind of speaking to him in this way of like, she, she, I, I think my interpretation is that the, her voice suggested that this was something that she wasn't actually that into, but then he was just like, "Oh, that's that's fantastic! This is this yeah, is incredible, yeah. incredible, wonderful." Scenes. Yeah, and well, it was- like when the uh, like when the beef eater uh, outside uh, Buckingham Palace fainted in the in the heat wave uh, because the sun never sets on the British Empire. Um, beef eater? Like- that sounds like a, a slur. <laughs> like what? Is- uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Those, I don't know if it was a beef palace gods with the with the furry hats, right? What, yeah, what they the royal god beefies? anyway. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think this guy was a beef eater. A beef eater is like a separate. They wear like a weird tabard, right? Like really? Okay. Well, one of the one of the royal guards, anyway. It's one of them cringe, cringe British guards. They're all the same. I agree. That's my point. Is like I don't have the same solidarity for him as to the uh, to like workers in Texas right now because it's like it's right. such a it's such a com- competitive position for someone in the armed forces to then get to be like royal guard and it's only the most basically like the most reactionary fucking people in the entire country work their <laughs> way up to to being like the uh the king defenders oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah yeah i thought maybe it was like some kind of like sl- you know like there's a lot of british slang for people like cockney slang or whatever i was thinking like oh maybe it's like a thing like rich people eat beef so it's like oh look at this beef eater, <laughs> you know? Um, I think it was actually one of the it was actually one of the trombone players in the in the Royal Guards uh, brass band. Uh, But yeah, nonetheless, they wear they wear the big silly hats, and uh, and I'm sure they're very very proud of themselves for sticking with their duty until they passed out. I do just want to let the podcast listeners know that uh, someone in the chat just said, "Call him shit eater because he ate shit." (laughs) I thought that was. uh... That was pretty that's fucking content, good. <laughs> that's, that's the content you could be catching if you if you're yeah, watching yeah. a live podcast. Listeners, consider it. Come check check out 8 p.m. Yeah. to 11 p.m. UK time. Red Planet Live. Just thinking about you know every kind. Like it, this is happening all over the place. Like I, I'm I'm constantly thinking all the time now due to climate change. How many different examples of this we're gonna see? Right? Do you know what I mean? And and how it, it all comes circling back to you know, how important it is to have, um, you know, medical aid for everybody, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to see more and more examples of this. We're going to see more and more um, people passing out at work. Um, You know, there's going to be whole, I guess, swathes of jobs that are now unable to, 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 to work in if you're disabled, right? If you have like chronically ill um conditions like you know you're not going to be able to work in in this heat you're not going to be able to do uh stuff you know how how i guess effective are air cons going to be um are air cons going to be taken out of some offices because uh you know the price is going to increase and that 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 ties to us uh interviewing common humanity collective as well who who were making like air air filtration and air and air conditioner units as cheaply as possible and teaching other people how to do it um i just think it's like there there are positive and negative liberties right there are negative liberties where people uh stop you doing a thing that you would otherwise do. And there are positive liberties where people facilitate you to do a thing that you wouldn't otherwise be able to. And it's just morally insane that we have, like that we consider ourselves some kind of advanced, developed, civilized society and our society doesn't 
you know, positively enable people to live, like just be alive uh, as the most basic one. And, and to link this back to abortion, um, a lot of people, I think, in the UK think that our legal situation is radically different from America. But like in a, in, a, in the UK, uh, abortion is illegal as the baseline um as the baseline reality like it, it is criminalized um and the legalization of abortion is by an exception for for how many weeks it, it can be allowed for which you know we we saw um a case in the news uh this last week of uh someone being prosecuted for having an abortion past that limit and like it's just it's very clear like them the 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 the, the, the people who see political capital in in attacking bodily autonomy are um uh, pushing it in the UK now as well. Yeah, it's happening in a lot of places. I've, I've, um, in the past, I've worked with some people uh, in Ireland where it's a much bigger problem. Um, not, not too far away in uh, in Poland as well, where it's also a huge problem. Um, and it's, it, you know, plenty of other places further from you. But it's again, it's always so peculiar when you see any sort of ideology that is based on restricting freedoms of others in ways that don't affect you literally at all. And it's a very, very strange thing. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's one of those things that's so, so hard to, come to grips with when you f look at it sort of plainly so many things it's like oh you know that's that's been a you know, problem for decades people have been arguing about it but, but why is that <laughs> is <laughs> have people been arguing about it just because they haven't thought of anything better to do yeah or because they were told to in in like a, a media environment discussing politics i mean this is a i this is something that's acutely acutely in my mind is like if i'm in public and i'm thinking about the possibility that someone might harass me which like happens fairly frequently like i'm I find myself wondering about the things that someone like that might find objectionable about trans people. And whenever I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking how much all of it is none of their business. Like who, who I uh, have sex with, or I'm, I'm trying to have find me attractive or whatever would be very high up their list of like um, things that basically is, is their concern. And they think is, is, is a problem. And it's like, <laughs> this is just none of your business unless you're interested. And, and even then, and even then, because yeah. I mean, yeah. um, it, <clears throat> given how I present currently, it might seem a little surprising, but I have been asked uh, whether I'm cis or trans. And it was one of those things where it's like, first of all, I wonder why you care. Yes. <laughs> and second of all, again, if, if it is because you're interested and that would be a deal breaker one way or the other, I don't think I want to talk to you either. No, a hundred. I mean, a hundred percent. I, I, um, this was online, but I got a comment on my channel the other day, just that asked, are you a trans woman? And I thought to myself, there's a, there's a very strange thing going on here where if you have to ask on the one hand, you already know. And on the other hand, you can't tell. So it doesn't matter like on any like level. It was very strange.
um yeah it is pretty it is pretty wild um you know and like the the we can always tell folks that just obviously never have any idea can never actually yeah. tell well us. i mean this is why my this is my why my one in the chamber for um for people who harass me as always do you have any real problems or do you just harass uh trans trans women all day only i don't say trans women um because <laughs> yeah, like yeah. why why aren't you focusing on your real problems on like unless uh it is elon musk harassing me and i believe that he doesn't have any real problems but like if it was elon musk harassing me i would just point and say lamau you're literally elon musk and everyone else would point and laugh too so it'd be fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you know it's one of those things where it's it, it's it's hard to quell the anger and just put your hand on somebody's shoulder and say are you okay yeah, 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 buddy, are you having a? Are you doing all Have you slept <laughs> enough? Yeah, have you? Are you breathing? Are you breathing good air? Are you drinking clean water? Are you eating well? I did. Um, I did reply to a troll like that once because I I saw a thing that um, it's like a New Zealand journalist David Farrier had written about like his new thing was just to be really nice to people that were you know trying to troll them and how successful it had been and just the people being like, oh man, I'm sorry. And I tried it once. This guy sent me this huge, like, hateful message. I can't even remember what it was about. And um, and I just sent this message back, being like, "Oh, hey, sorry, man, but you know, that's just that's just my opinion on a couple things. I'm sorry they disagreed with it, but you know, just like this really chill message." And then months later, I got this message back from him, being like, "Hey, look, sorry, dude. I just I was having a really rough time, and I was really upset." <laughs> <laughs> it was like hilarious and I sent it back and I was just like oh man I'm glad to hear you're doing better you know like hopefully you put that behind you <laughs> so it was just like so funny like messages I thought I would never receive and here well, we go to, to to add something to this in, in a kind of bizarre way um as a sex worker I receive oftentimes like I mean I get a lot of dms but sometimes I'll just I, I get a surprising number of dms where men are just like want to talk to me and like want to feel like less alone like they'll just they just want to have companionship of some kind and like i think there's lots of different ways we can evaluate that but i the way that's sticking out to me right now is like what you're talking about tim this like how so much of this of this hateful rhetoric and this hateful posturing if you chip it away can just come down to like bleak alienation and this this very bleak loneliness and feeling of no purpose feeling like no community that and like it's 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 quite depressing like it's kind of funny but your story legitimately is like funny but also i think there's there's something there's a bigger picture to think about here which is why people whose wrongheadedness and alienatedness and so on are, are not our true enemy the true enemy is people making them like that and then exploiting them being yeah. like that right yeah, yeah. And they're, they're they're suffering as as much or maybe more right because they've been they're, they're stuck like that and um yeah they also can't see their own liberation because they're also trapped in the neoliberal mind prison. You know? For sure. But yeah, the, the, what you bring up about people being lonely and, and touch starved, you know, the, the notion that most of humanity has been divided and conquered and we've been alienated from our humanity and the notion of, of wanting of affection and wanting to be together with people is so disallowed that there's such a short swath of what's acceptable in terms of those sorts of things and in terms of giving or receiving it and 
and it, it yeah i mean I, the idea of someone being that there, there was a point in human history at which the idea of some a human being being touch starved was very rare very very strange like the idea that people couldn't have access to affection from other human beings uh by their just normal social relations you know uh, didn't exist at some point yeah and i mean and circling back to sex work the earliest sex work was a a sacred thing it was done by the priesthood because it was the most important work there was for making sure that people felt cared for you, you carry on a wonderful tradition you know of, of taking care of people in the most fundamental way yeah i i have a, a bit of a reference to this in the tattoo i mentioned getting last week the public universal girlfriend tramp stamp it's like i uh you know want to you know express my sexual liberation in a way that's also like reminding us that like you know being like slutty or whatever is not um is not a, a moral uh lack of virtue and all this stuff it's actually like being uh available for affection with like people that you care about like a, a good a good thing <laughs> like right on yes i'm yes i i second that which font would you choose uh i went with a sort of round uh, uh bubble-ish uh kind of uh post psychedelia kind of look uh it's got a little 3d shimmer on it Nice. Oh yeah, um, yeah. No, very based. Um, the picture of it is available on my Twitter. Oh yeah, yeah. there you go. You find it if you uh, scroll back far enough. Um, but yeah, no, based. yeah. I, and I think speaking of tattoos and stuff, I think like the bodily autonomy thing is interesting because it does pop up occasionally in like you know like the body modification and like industries more so than like tattooing, but like in the kind of extreme uh, kind of you know, the things that are kind of a bit further beyond piercing sort of thing. Um, you know, like things like uh, like pointing ears, splitting tongues, um, implants under the skin and stuff. That's actually when I, yeah, when I was back at the shop doing my piercing apprenticeship, we did, um, I, I was apprenticing under the guy that was like pretty much the only person in New Zealand that would do like subdermal and transdermal implants. So we would do everything from like i think he he was in a mag a tech magazine for being like one of the first people to implant an rfid chip and things like this this was like in the early 2000s and um you know but then we'd do other things as well like people would get little weird silicone things under their skin and their forehead or like um you know like the other one is like genital beading was like more popular than most people would uh would suspect but um yeah yeah and like this kind of thing would um pop up occasionally as well because it would be these procedures that people will do and um it's basically the kind of thing where it's like you can't even get someone to do a waiver for it because then you're acknowledging that you're doing something that is you know is bad and it's kind of like you you just have to do this thing and be like okay well i'm you know like don't like I'm going to do this thing to the best of my ability. Um, we we both agree that we understand the risks and stuff, but like you know, I can't I can't get you to write down a thing saying like yes, I understand that you know climbing in the submarine is probably going to result in my death. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so um, there was like people would come up with like you know like different things. Like I, there was like one guy that would have like a little um you know like a little dictaphone and he'd be like okay. 
I'm going to record this thing of us both agreeing. We both know what's up. You've had the opportunity to ask any questions and stuff. And then I'm just going to put this little tape in it safe. And I'm going to hold on to it, you know, in case it ever comes up. But um, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard of practitioners um, going to jail. Um, fortunately, the only one I've heard of that, yeah, really seriously went to jail was also just a real, a real um, pretty dodgy practitioner in general. So it's kind of like, you know, no big loss to the community in my eyes. But um Yeah, I yeah, didn't know we're big into body mods. Do you do you know about the peg leg project that I did? The peg leg? No, I don't think so. What's that what's up with that? Oh, okay. I mean I don't want to divert the conversation too far, but but Wired Wired magazine did a good article about it. Oh but I made a uh oh a pirate file server that I got implanted in my leg and I made out of counterfeit electronics, sort of the Johnny Monic thing. Um, it, it, it was fun. It was fun. It didn't get a lot of traction. People didn't seem to care, but it was one of these things where it was like, okay, the internet's broken. How do we make new internet? Okay. We need mesh networks. Okay. How do we build mesh networks? Well, we need, you know, file servers that are local area networks that don't connect to the internet and those need to mesh with other things. And all right, how do we make it so that those can cross international borders without getting seized? Well, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's, that's what I did one day. (laughs) My God. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I feel like um, ideologically there is like a intersection there. Like uh, a lot of the people that I, have known that have been really into um you know kind of more extreme body modifications uh like you know like really kind of like adjacent to kind of like hacker communities and things yeah. like that like there's like a significant crossover there um but yeah, yeah no we, i always presented it at defcon it was in the oh, yeah. biohacking village um so, so that talk should be online somewhere um cool. yeah well here let me throw a question out of the myriad health crises that face the world currently, what would you put, you don't have to say this is your number one, but if you would pick one that's at least in your top five or 10, what's the first one that comes to mind? I mean, for me, it would just be like homelessness. It would, it would be, it would be like the, like I often think the, the warning story is about like AI will do this is always like, well, what task are you putting it to? If you're putting it to a capitalist task, yeah, I'll probably kill everyone. But like, uh, if it was, if its task was to improve health outcomes, one of the first things it would do would be like, well, everyone needs to be fucking housed. Number one. Hmm. Housing first. Definitely. That is, that is. Yeah. And, um, probably linked to that. One of my big things, which I, I consider like, a a public health crisis and you know like a mental health crisis but i know that a lot of people don't really perceive it that way is probably our mass incarceration um particularly oh, yeah. like yeah like maori are the, one of the most like disproportionately Tim, tim's um, taking my thing one step further he's like no no it's people being in the building against their will that's the problem i'm like shit he got me the people that don't have the building and the people that can't leave the building these are the <laughs> problems but um, yeah that would be mine I, I i think that it's um like i and i think that talking about prison abolition like ties in very easily to a lot of other things in ways that people don't realize so um yeah that would that would be my big one i think yeah i mean i taught math in prisons for many years and the hmm. things that you see with people's health are really scary yeah. you know yeah. We've had um some prison riots down here recently, and it's like, you know, like they end up 
there was like one recently um, where they started a fire inside the prison and, um, you know, but basically had, it was, it was like a strike, I would say, you know, like a prisoner's strike sort of thing, because um, they, they didn't have, oh, there was so much stuff they didn't have. They were basically like living in squalor. They weren't having their basic needs met against, against the law, you know, like they, it was illegal to be keeping them in the condition that they were in. And they had complained through all the available, like all of the proper channels they had exhausted. And it's like, this is what, you know, this is what you have to do, like uh, to get their attention or whatever. And, you know, then it just, it gets on the news and it's like, you know, all these like wild prisoners are burning down the prison that they're in because they're, you know, like treating them like animals or whatever. And, you know, like people like all these like shock jock kind of like TV journalists are all like, well, you know, why didn't they just let people know that they didn't have working toilets or they weren't being fed or like some of them were, you know, like had preventable illnesses. And it's like, if you actually take five minutes to look at it, it's, you know, like they have, they've been doing this for months and months. They've been campaigning and all this kind of stuff. And I think just the way that people think about prisoners has a lot to do with this. Like they assume that, the first thing they assume is just that they are, you know, basically animals or whatever. And then afterwards they think like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe there's another reason. But um, yeah, anyway, sorry, uh, uh, Mule or Kira, do you have uh, an answer? I just have to say that I am a like a published epidemiologist. So asking yes. me like, what's the biggest public health crisis? Um, I don't have to say biggest, but just like, what's your, what's your, what's the one that resonates with you the most emotionally? Oh God. Okay. That's a different question. Okay. Mule, you go. I'll think about it. <laughs> okay. Um, so like, I, I guess I get most of my medical based ideas from Cuba. Um, Cuba seemed to be pretty good about, um, you know, doing a lot of good medical work all over the world. And one of the biggest things seems to be like, um, vaccine, development and, and uh, distribution across the imperial periphery um particularly in africa there are like lots of countries in africa that um you know still don't have uh covid vaccine but not just the covid vaccine like various other mac vaccines um and you know they're gate kept and 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 sort of like held <clears throat> you know under lock by big farmer and uh yeah stuff like that so I, I i definitely think like um vaccine distribution all across the imperial periphery is something i think about a lot um yeah so yeah yeah all right my answer is um it's nutrition but also not just nutrition but also um the intersection of nutrition with with our exploitation of our animal a non-human animal comrades because very few very little uh, attention is ever paid to our uh, non uh, non human animal comrades and like their plight and how they are being both the products of exploitation and the laborers and the products of their own ex exploitation and then also the consumers of that um, which by the way it's not just solely animal products that are consumed that cause poor health and like that entire disgusting industry but it's also um, you know it goes farther far larger than that um, I don't want to reduce nutritional issues just to that because that's just not fair but um i i would say personally as an as because i'm vegan and so emotionally um just seeing like the 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 issues that uh poor nutrition both education and access and access is like so frustrating like because you were talking about earlier like 
if it's not like this food isn't there. It's not like we don't have it. <laughs> it's like it's it's there. It exists. We can easily make more of it too if we just changed a few things. But but that would require some people to to lose lots of money, and um, right. we can't have yeah. that. <clears throat> Since you guys are readers, there's another book called Big Hunger that is sort of the nonprofit industrial complex looking at food scarcity. And when you see most of the big donors have the people who utilize those services, they are their own employees, which is pretty horrifying. Yeah. So what you're talking about is basically um, Walmart basically having like access, like a sign up area for SNAP, where you sign up for food stamps at Walmart as an employee <laughs> because Walmart refuses to pay you livable wage. So they make it very accessible uh, yeah. to just sign up for for government, the government to subsidize your food through a program that by the way keeps getting chipped away so it's even right. less and less access and less and less funding for it so um yeah if we're going to be specific like that and the the big one is safeway safeway oh. is like this incredible donor and creates all of these food drives and most of the people who utilize them as a food bank are the people who work for them which is so backward yeah yeah it's it's despicable um and it literally means i mean beyond the subsidies that these companies are already provided by us literally, literally means even more this is even a, yeah. an indirect it's an indirect subsidy but it is a subsidy because um otherwise workers would die they would not be able to live yeah. on those yeah. wages and many of them are for the record um so yeah so access to like uh not the intersect like access to like uh good nutrition um but also the way that it intersects with um, our the exploitation of our non-human animal comrades. Yeah. My, yeah. My, will, my... will you say a little bit more about your work in epidemiology? What sorts oh, of things you write um, about? I, yeah, so I used to uh, work in infectious disease epidemiology, focusing on immunocompromised uh, patients, specifically like hematopoietic cell transplant recipients. Yeah. And so... Um, we would study just the, like we were talking about earlier, like many hospital-borne infections, but not necessarily. Right. Um, but a lot of my work was in tracking like hospital-borne infections, like Clostridium difficile um, or, or things like that. And so, um, or norovirus. And so oftentimes it would be like a larger study, but sometimes it'd be a smaller one. Like we would get down to like the literal rooms and like figure out the actual like poor, poor uh, custodian work that would lead to an infection. For instance, there is patients that were uh, staying in these facilities that were uh, funded by like Ronald McDonald, whatever. Anyways, thank you McDonald's, but they're not paying for any uh, custodians. So the custodian work had to be done by the people that were staying in those facilities while their loved ones were getting care at the nearby hospital. Wow. Um, because of this, and because also they were not provided like bleach to clean up after themselves. Probably training either, right? Yeah, no, yeah, no, no training, no, not adequate uh, cleaning supplies, uh, illnesses like Clostridium difficile, which is not fatal to most people, but is fatal to, can be fatal to immunocompromised uh, patients, uh, was, was, was a problem. Um, and because, you know, their loved ones was, were, it was being spread at the facilities and also being spread, um, to to the patients and so yeah that that was kind of like a little bit of my work i also did some work prior to that uh outside of epidemiology but epidemiology was uh a, you know that was more like lab technician but as like a first author and stuff this was my work yeah i love it how when um covid first kicked off as well 
uh, and you were started talking about stuff, people were like, well, stick to streaming. Like, what do you know? It's like, yeah, actually, uh, actually, actually, <laughs> actually. <laughs> I, got the, I got the same treatment. I got the same treatment right at the end of 2019. I was like, this is terrifying and we should be paying close attention. Everybody's like, you're always freaking out about infectious disease. And I was like, um, and somebody's like, hey, look at it. It's only like three percent lethal i'm like so are we gonna call it less lethal like rubber bullets <laughs> and I, I that tweet is still up somewhere I, I i don't know quite when it was dated it might have been early 2020 it might have been as late as like february but i was freaking out and yeah and but um infectious disease and hospital-born stuff like that is uh something i don't want to say dear to my heart but it's something i think about a lot and i'll tell you um, it's, it's, I used to have hair longer than yours and then I caught MRSA and I nearly didn't survive it, uh, twice. <laughs> um, and, and now, um, yeah, DJ and I share our hairdo instead. <laughs> That's what's really frustrating about that. Um, because so much MRSA is acquired in, ho- in hospitals or healthcare facilities and like, Healthcare practitioners, it goes back to what you're talking about, like custodial work, healthcare practitioners have this issue, like doctors specifically, um, not exclusively, but doctors really specifically, and I think it's kind of the hubris of being a doctor, (laughs) um, just don't practice hand hygiene regularly. Like you'll have the whole pump in, pump out policy for a lot of hospitals for comes to hand sanitizers or like wash your hands. They won't participate in those activities so much so that these facilities have to like put things all over the place and even insist that patients ask your practitioner, did you wash your hands before you talk to me? And by the way, may I tell you that if you do ask them that question, they get very upset, very offended. <laughs> that should not be required. I do that when I come into a house. Me too. We uh, had doctors and nurses come through the shop, the tattoo shop sometimes, and just like they, you know, like I mean, most of them are fine, but the people that have been really bad have often been from that kind of medical background. And they'll come in and they'll start like, you know, you'll have a, a aseptic kind of set up with your machine and all your equipment and everything like that. And then people will like come along and just, you know, like, and it's always doctors and nurses will start picking things up and being like, oh, what is this? <laughs> And it's like, what are you doing? You should know better. You should know the way these things are laid out and everything. The way that I've only touched things with gloves, all this kind of stuff. Like it's just obvious, even if you didn't know. Did you see this sterile drape? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, you know, like everything's laid out on like a dental bib and everything like that. And they're just like getting amongst Mm. it. But um, oh god, I have so many stories from. uh, I have so many stories of like poor sterile technique that were from PhDs and not the technicians. Like I can't even, it's, it's revolting for the record. Um, but yes, like this, it's, it's a weird, bizarre phenomenon that like the higher you go up in terms of like your status in a, in a particular, like, like, a, like fields like in healthcare and science, oftentimes the more arrogant you like the kind of like ownership you feel of like these topics and like, no longer do I have to bother myself with like caring about these smaller things because I've like, I am, I've been in this field for 20 years. I must, I, I must therefore be immune to having to practice these like more rigorous seemingly like lower than me yeah but no no yeah if you just get the upgrade so that you're always sterile at all times 
Um, the, some, one of our one of our chat regulars, Biddleth Marxist, actually relating to this said in in the chat uh, to answer Michael's like question to all of us. I am of the very nature of teaching medicine, especially for doctors, is based on a capitalist exhaustive model that destroys more potential health workers rather than creating new ones. Doctors' hours alone are something no doctor would recommend any human endure. And yet, uh, which uh, to which I said that uh, they should read uh, Medical Nemesis from Michael's uh, uh, reading list because that's exactly. Uh, a huge yeah. point of that. Well, and if you'd um, if you'd like a slightly uh, different and and shorter in volume and and fewer in notes introduction to that notion, uh, the same author Ivan Ilyich wrote um, two books. One of which is called Tools for Conviviality, and the other is called um, Towards a Towards a uh, towards a something of needs, like a like a uh, was it was an idea of of trying to put together a sort of you know this Tolstoyan idea of like or what is really required for life, and um, I can't remember which of those it is, but one of them opens with a chapter or, or an introduction called Two Watersheds." Toward and a history of needs. Uh, toward the history of needs. That's what it was. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So toward a history of needs, it opens with this uh, section called Two Watersheds. And it talks about the point in history somewhere in the early 20s where Western medicine had better than a coin flip's worth of odds of making you better. Um, or uh, it was either better than a coin flip or that it was working better than his estimation of folk medicine. Folk medicine was probably doing a whole lot better most of the time. And then a point in further somewhere in the mid to late fifties where the number of ailments caused by the medical infrastructure outpaced the number of ailments that could be treated by the medical infrastructure. Mm. And that's sort of a starting point. If you don't want to read a really thick, heavy, very, very academic book where sometimes the footnotes are more than the body text in a given page. If, if that's not the sort of thing that really gets you going. If, if you don't read like I read basically. Yeah. Um, but it, it, that's a good introduction. And if, and if that gets you going, then pick up medical nemesis maybe because medical nemesis is a uh, it's heavy it is a heavy heavy very dense um which is is uh, is awesome if you like that yeah um so what what other questions do we have trickling in yeah we actually should probably get to the uh, it is about time so chat chat we're going to be reading questions from the chat first one is from Morgan the Fay, and she has asked, uh, wasn't there an analysis recently that in the last year since Roe was overturned, the amount of abortions hasn't changed all that much? Correct me if I'm wrong. I will not correct you. That makes sense. I, I, I don't know the analysis myself, but like, I wouldn't be surprised by that in the slightest. Uh, the data is not good also because plenty of abortions don't get recorded. Um, access has gone down and so there are plenty of people who needed them and did not get them in many cases uh, re resulting in 
tragedy um, in, in varying numbers of ways. But that said, the, the people who fight the good fight underground and distribute access to abortions in ways that are extra legal, as I like to call it, or circumlegal, um, or both, uh, they have they have really risen to the occasion and and done done the good work that was needed in in most cases. The hard part really being that oftentimes when somebody needs that sort of care, they don't know where to look to get it. Um, it's sort of this last mile problem of if you're already linked into the underground, you know. You're not the person that we need to get in touch with to say like, hey, you have options. There are people who can help you out. There are, if there are people who will, you know, drive you to a neighboring state. There are organizations which will put up the money. There are groups that will mail you pills. Um, because it's like people, uh, people know that the trans community is fairly radical. So when you're talking about the struggle for bodily autonomy, there it's one thing. But like the, but you know, the the biggest demographic of people who have abortions is uh his mother's like and 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 they're not necessarily right. plugged into everything we're talking about yeah, yeah yeah that was um absolutely something that is mentioned quite a lot in um, a woman's book of choices about how it's not you know like there is this like this idea of the you know the woman who gets an abortion or whatever like that but it's like the it's you know literally everyone from all walks of life including you know there's a big section that talks about women that are opposed to abortions that still get them anyway you know and all this kind of stuff but just the majority of the cases are just like oh this is a woman who had um you know like she had a promotion at work coming up and she wasn't necessarily opposed to having another child it just wasn't the right time you know or like oh like just on the current income that she was on or like you know being single it just wasn't the right time and it's like just normal Normal mothers with kids and families. If you look at the statistics that come out of the Guttmacher Institute, they do a very good job of cataloging those that sort of demographic information. And and the thing that... Everything that you indicate is totally true. And one of the things that seems so strange in the sort of abortion fight is these people who are anti-abortion. They and their wives and their daughters and their mistresses and will all get all the abortions they ever need it's not a thing yeah, yeah. They, mm -hmm. they feel like they fall into a separate category uh because they you know yeah we're no no we're just flying to switzerland for the weekend it's, it's mm -hmm. no big deal yeah yeah flying to switzerland or ireland or you know there's a couple other places um yeah yeah and that's the thing right and they, they talk about that a lot they have i mean it's all kind of anecdotal but they have accounts in the book of people that they you know there was even um there was some um clinic workers that recognized the people that were picketing their clinics coming in you know and like <laughs> oh or like like things like this or you know like the the wives and daughters of you know famous figures that were you know had spoken out and they gave them you know the they they helped them they did everything they can for them and so, in some of the cases there was one clinic i remember mentioned where they um they collected the details of people like well so they did like a consent form and then it, it said like you know um do you do you agree with abortion you know like all these kind of things ask them about their political views on it and they collected the details of them and they said that um you know like a lot of these people are like 
very well known people or like related to people in this community or whatever like that they just don't see themselves as the person that gets the abortion they have like a you know a personal kind of perspective that is at odds with their policy so for them you know they would come into the waiting room and they would sit separate from all the others and they would judge them or whatever like that and they're like i'm not like these people i'm a you know like i'm a i'm a good person forced to make a hard decision whereas these people are just you know like these are these are the abortion habits or whatever so it's like yeah it's 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 pretty uh interesting but um i did find um there was a chapter in it about like the chapter that's about the legality and um, things. And it's like the, about um, kind of, you know, abortions or other forms of um, pregnancy termination or whatever as um, civil disobedience, I found really interesting because, um, you know, there are forms of civil disobedience that are, protected under law in some ways or like you know like it's a different legal scenario when it's like you are just committing a crime because you are doing something illegal or whatever for personal gain whatever or civil disobedience where it's a political thing where you are like I am breaking the law because I believe it is unjust you know and um like you know that how there was like there is an actual distinction from this and it can help you in court for certain ways or whatever so it's kind of um beyond the law right that that differentiation ideologically has quite the storied history. And if you read what Ulrika Meinhoff wrote for the RAF, when she said, you, you burn a single car, it's a crime. If you burn a hundred cars, it's a political action. You, you throw a single rock and that's a crime. If you a crowd throws a hundred rocks, it's a political action. And some of the ideas that came out of that, it's, it's, uh, interesting to get into the weeds on that yeah 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 but um what do we got here so la la magi de la v has asked us got a question on the medical freedom front should there be public organizations dedicated to conducting replication trials on pharmaceutical drugs and if so how should such trials be paid for (laughs) wow well um top marks for sophistication uh <laughs> on that one <sighs> so there's sort of some antecedent things that one needs to at least ask if not answer um in terms of looking at the trials that are done for approving a medication if you think about that first that system is already highly flawed which i I guess is sort of what the question references is that shouldn't those be replicated to make sure um i mean the, the answer is yes and uh but first that the approval structure if if one believes in the uh, whole system of approval of drugs in the first place which ironically was an institution that was set up to try and keep the public safer from predatory capitalists and yet has now just become a tool of predatory capitalism 
bizarrely. Um, so so the, there are a number of things wrong that we could spend another two hours talking about just with the drug approval process. But a few that are notable that are not talked about a great deal is that oftentimes drugs will not be approved, which would be useful in a medical context, not because the drugs do not work, but because the drugs do not outperform the existing medications. And this is a really big deal because it means that there are fewer tools in the toolbox for a medical practitioner to reach for. And these technologies just sit on the shelf. Other times things are not approved because they work very well, but not for the plurality of cases. So you might have something that is a miracle cure, but only for a fifth of the participants. And because it doesn't work for most of them, then it doesn't pass. And then, so the sort of converse problem that's being brought up by uh, your viewer is that something, sometimes things are proved when perhaps they shouldn't be. One of the antecedent problems there is that you just need to have a trial that works once. And you don't even need to publish the results of all the failed trials once you have one that works. So that's an antecedent problem as well. Um, that said, in terms of then looking at, so for, for, for your viewers who don't know, the process for approving drugs um, in the United States is very similar to most first world countries uh, and most countries in general, in fact, where what will happen is the first you test to see if it's uh, toxic on its own. You need to make sure that it's not something that causes uh, horrific dangers. Then the second phase of the trial says, does it have any therapeutic effects at all? And then once that's established, the third phase of trials is to show that it works better than the existing go-to treatment. Um, so assuming you manage to do each of those one time and it works, uh, then your, your drug gets pushed through. So then to revisit something to say, is this actually as safe as we thought? is definitely worth doing. In fact, the way ideally it would work is that you would have data on everybody who takes the drug subsequently. Um, and oftentimes, I mean, and of course the, the danger there is the way that people collect data and anonymity and, and so on, but it, Assuming you could solve that problem in a, a realistic way, the best way to bake that in is to merely have every prescription that's given for a prescription drug to carry with it a necessary follow-up from the physician to see how the patient fared uh, under those conditions. And that would do wonders to determine if there are... Uh, concerns that are uh, uh, invisible. And this, 
And in plenty of cases, that data is recorded, but it's not fed back up the chain and it doesn't lead to any decision-making processes. And often it's, uh, it's shrouded data within an institution and is not even shared with other medical practitioners. An example of this that's very personal for me is the first generation selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors uh, that were hailed as this miracle cure for depression which also led to untold numbers of suicides, which seems rather contradictory because first-gen SSRIs, um, Prozac, et cetera, did create, do create, continue to create suicidal ideation in people who previously didn't have it. And there are theories to the mechanism of that. Oftentimes, it's that you have people who are both depressed and exhausted because of their depression. And when you give them something that gives them the energy to do things, but has not yet taken the two requisite weeks to kick in so that their serotonin balance has made them less depressed, then they have the energy to actually act on all of their thoughts. And I have several friends personally who are dead because of that uh, and untold others. And it's because, I mean, eventually studies were done to point this out, but it's done nothing to regulate the prescription or even to moderate the, the way, the, the, the fierce pace with which antidepressants are prescribed, both to people who are chronically depressed for neurochemical reasons and people who are situationally depressed and don't need medication but need care instead who also often end up suicidal because they don't need their brain fucked with they need to be thinking about what's wrong in their life um so yeah so the the answer to that is that every every drug should continuously be in on trial and data needs to be collected perpetually for as as much as possible and of course you know safely anonymously ethically and and that system needs to be in a continuous rolling process um and who should pay for that the fucking drug companies (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's also like in the i guess discussion of the centralization and standardization of these kinds of bodies for testing like there are obvious like implicit bias problems and, and problems for marginalized communities. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll do another two hours on that. Yeah, you know. to continually make everything about myself again. Um, w- with, with DIY HRT, like when we were researching, we did come across a group in, in Paris who like uh, not only like uh, do harm reduction stuff and teach people how to, to safely use, uh, use injectable estrogen, but also like have access to a lab. So they're running their own studies that cis people simply aren't doing because they don't care to do uh, the same kind of studies into the, like the best way for someone to um, implement HRT. Yeah. Cool. What else we got? We got uh, a cat made entirely of urine has asked what books <laughs> are on the reading list. And I have the list here. Uh, it is Medical Nemesis by Ivan Illich, A Woman's Book of Choices by Carol Downer and Rebecca Chalker, Information Feudalism by John Braithwaite and Peter Drahos, and The Crime of Reason by Robert B. Laughlin. Um, But then a follow-up to that is that Mr. Noobster asked, what reading level are the books on the list? Uh, I would say The Crime of Reason is very accessible. I think it was ghostwritten. 
um, the, the guy who's the author is, uh, I think he won the Nobel Prize in physics, um, but it, clearly there was a professional writer who, who wrote with great intention to make it accessible. So that's it's a fairly easy read. It's fairly short. It is still well uh, uh, annotated in terms of the citations. Um, so when you see something that sounds suspect, you can flip to the end and see where they got that uh, information. And, and it, 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 I checked almost every reference in that book because so many things that he claims are suspect. And sometimes he, he views it in a way that's uh, a little slanted, but he's not bullshitting per se. Um, then, as I mentioned, uh, Medical Nemesis is a heavy read. That's that's definitely a text for when you know you've you've turned your phone off and you're home alone and you've already fed the cat and you can really really focus on the text. So that's a, that's a heavy read. Um, a Woman's Book of Choices is a mixed bag. They kind of go back and forth. There are sections which are just uh, transcripts of experiences that people had and people talking. Sometimes it's very conversational. And then other times it gets very technical where they are talking about uh, questions of, you know, how does infection spread and, 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 you know, how do reproductive systems work and, and how do we manipulate them so that they operate the way we'd like them to. Um, but that also is much more of a reference book that you would read in sections rather than read it all the way through, probably. Um, did we have a fourth one? Oh, uh, Information Feudalism. Information Feudalism. That one's pretty academic, I gotta say. It's, it's, a, little, it's a little academically constipated, for lack of a better word. Um, they, they come at it from this very technical standpoint. Um, and while they do make it concrete, um, from time to time, oftentimes they are talking about things that are fairly abstract in terms of international law and economics, uh, that can get a bit dry. So that's, you know, that's the sort of book that is good to read standing up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did um I did appreciate with the woman's book of choices, it was very much written in a way that was like you could just give this to anyone and this would be a good resource for them. It's like it's super accessible and when it if it brings up uh like something that it's mentioned in the book, it will like it explains a couple things a couple times over because you know they'll talk about one thing in one section and then if it comes up later like in you know there's like sections where it's actually explaining like this is the process and it mentions something it'll explain that thing again like a little bit briefer and, and again the reason that things are explained more than once is because it's designed to be modular so you can if you yeah, see yeah, it exactly you want to read about one thing it's yeah, not yeah. enough to read everything up until that so you can use it very much as a reference book yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. and it's great yeah and it's like it is it is it was designed by women that were like frustrated with the inaccessibility of a lot of medical information and um you know that was part of the goal was to be able to get it into the hands of people that you know hadn't you know they didn't hadn't been to medical school or anything like that so um and again they did a great job and still relevant today um, yeah it's so amazing it's good that it's there and it's sad that it's needed you know
yeah, they had a, a lawyer that was quite skeptical um, working with them. And so he was very good in like probing a lot of their stuff and being like, well, what about this? What about this? And it actually like really, um, I think, made the book a lot stronger. Like you can kind of tell when this was like the probing finger of the lawyer that was like, you know, getting in there. Right, um, right. Yeah. Great book. Um, got one more question. Just Johnny has asked, uh, how could we help with the problems with superbugs and antibiotic resistances? Uh, we have to define we, like humanity. Um, yeah, I have to assume it's a. Uh, I have to assume it's not a, like a state level question. Okay, I mean, if we say humanity, the 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 quick answer is bacteriophages. Um, bacteriophages are this miraculous technology that was standard practice in the USSR for decades. Um, and what bacteriophages are, for those who are unfamiliar, is they are viruses that infect and kill specific bacteria. And this is way more effective than the 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 chemical sledgehammers that we use uh in the west of of antibiotics and they they don't develop resistance um and they're they're it's a scalpel instead of a cudgel and it's not really studied anymore like you can go to the the country of georgia and there is one lab there that has an incredible library of bacteriophages and basically that needs to become standard practice uh those libraries need to be categorized expanded shared propagated and that needs to be a standard tool in the toolbox of every library in every 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 that library needs to be in every hospital in the world and the problem of superbugs will diminish significantly uh that's the first one um the other thing is that bed rails need to be made of copper because even things as nasty as MRSA will die on the surface of copper in 70 minutes they're just as easy to clean as steel it's more expensive but only in the short term because think of what you have to spend when you're containing a super bug um you know and, and, and copper is pretty we should make everything out of copper and doorknobs and common touch points light switches i mean not, not just because i like it personally but i do um but you know things like that you, there are materials that are uh endogenously uh, resistant to microbes and if instead of making elevator buttons and light switches out of plastic we had nice engraved copper it wouldn't just be prettier, but it would also be prettier. Um, but it would also be um, safer. And, and um, yeah, so th those those would be the top two in my mind. We need to we need to utilize and and normalize the use of bacteriophages, and we need to have 
surfaces that are naturally uh, bacteria resistant. Um, and, you know, uh, like Kara said, fucking wash your hands when you come into a house. <laughs> it's like a really simple thing. If, if you, if you want to do this on an individual level, like get yourself a little bottle of chlorhexidine and just, and, and there are formulations of chlorhexidine that have like things that are good for your skin. So you won't dry out and crack um, and just use it a lot. And, you know, you will get sick less often and you will make other people sick uh, less often, even unwittingly. Um, but yes, tell, read about and tell everybody about bacteriophages. It's one of those things where once, once you learn about it, you, you will freak out and all of your friends will ask if you would please just talk about anything else. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting. Like I've never heard of that. Like I've heard of like, I guess, similar things in like science fiction and stuff, but being a, um, a known Soviet enjoyer, I'm surprised I've never, <laughs> I've never heard of uh, this. Yeah. So I'm definitely gonna look it, look I feel I'm being confirmed as a greater Soviet enjoyer than Tim. Oh, busted, fake, fake Soviet, <laughs> um, Soviet fan. <laughs> Big old phony over here. Um, uh, greatest thing to come out of the Soviet Union, the bacteriophages, and they did a great job. Also, for anybody out there who's a burgeoning biologist who needs a field of study, go, please, do not let these this knowledge die out. There are so few people studying it. And it is yeah, yeah. the most powerful tool that is not being used right now. I feel Please. like there's probably some out there in our audience. We've had, yeah, it's been surprising how many people pop into the chat and they're just surprisingly like studying or already an expert in some subject, you know, it's, um, we have yeah. a pretty, pretty good crowd. Um, but yeah, um, Cool. Speaking of the crowd, um, what about that homework? What are our thoughts mm, on giving yeah, these, yeah, yeah. our audience homework? Is there anything you can think of that would be a good, um, just, it doesn't have to be anything major, but just something, um, something good that people could eat. Like in the past, we've had things, everything from uh, like reading particular books to um, like getting joining a first aid kit. Union. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. learning how to use kit, a first uh, aid kit. Yeah. Walk around in your neighborhood and imagine how it would look different in your ideal world. Yeah, yeah. You got any good ideas for um, what we could give them? Yeah, well, so I have sort of a, uh, something I say a lot that's more Four Thieves specific, where I say if you if you believe in what Four Thieves is doing, you'd like to support us specifically, the best way that you can do it is to find somebody that needs your help and to help them whether you think they deserve it or not. So that's a starter. Um, but if, if for something that's maybe a little more specific, there's a region of the brain called the hippocampus. And it's named so because it vaguely resembles a seahorse. And there are two conditions under which the hippocampus atrophies. The first one is chronic depression. And the second one is a lack of situational navigation. So if you're the, if you constantly use turn by turn directions on your phone, <laughs> rather than being aware of where you are and, and navigating by landmarks, Oh, God, you're um, describing me. Oh, God. Okay, keep going. <laughs> so, no, th there's good news. There's, there's a way to reverse it. This is the great, this is the great thing. Okay. So, um, so for uh, the two of you who are in the UK, 
if you think about London and the black cabs and the knowledge exam that they have to take, black cab drivers have to memorize all of London, not just all of London, but the one-way system through all of London so they can actually plot the most efficient route between any two points in what is a absolutely sprawlingly gigantic city. Yep. If you look at the brains of these people, they have huge hippocampi. And interestingly enough, so the, the size of the hippocampus can be modulated in both directions. So if you have a friend who is depressed, here is a good thing that you can do for them. Set up an exercise where they are going to direct you without using uh, instructions from a computer from wherever they live to some other point. You make sure that you are with them. And if they are the sort of people who are phobic about being without their phone, you don't have to take it away. Um, you can just turn GPS off. If they want to use the map on their phone, that is still a useful thing. If, you, if, if they're good enough that you can take their phone away, give them a paper map and it'll be even better. But they can use a digital map. There's nothing wrong with that. But the idea that they will guide you and they'll never be without you. And you, if they freak out, you can go home and stop at any time. Remind them that they're safe. Say, before you leave the house, we're going to pick a spot that we're going to go. You're going to direct me. And I'll be with you the whole time. And anytime that things feel too scary, we, we can stop and go straight home. And you can turn GPS back on. Use turn-by-turn -turn directions if you need to. Don't worry. But that little exercise will reverse start the process of reversing the hippocampal atrophy. And if they're, if they're amicable to that, um, help them through it and then try and do it a little more and then maybe do it in a place where you haven't been before. And if that's too much, if somebody's, you know, uh, having the all bodies because of going outside without having help, start with something even more basic sit down with a uh, uh, open world video game that they haven't played before and just have them navigate around the space don't they don't have to play it they just are walking around and just have them figure out where they are um this reminds me of uh, playing Morrowind as a kid where that you would have the printed out map because the map yeah. the game wasn't really the same. And like me and my brothers would be like, you know, navigating, like looking, okay, there's a mountain to the west. All right, where are we on the map? You know, like yeah. I like this homework a lot. I will actually be doing this this week. Yeah. No, it sounds so, so yeah, and everybody everybody has friends who are struggling with depression. You know, it's it's far more common than we all would like to give it credit for, but it, find somebody who, who's who's having some trouble and just suggest it. Say, if you'd like to do this, I will do it with you. That's that's your homework. All right. I'm down. I'm doing it. I'm all over it. Yeah. No, I'm into it. Um, yeah. And so for you four, I, I expect you four to report back and let me know how it went. <laughs> All okay. Right, cool. Okay. We'll do. Now I will hopefully we don't do get it. too lost then. <laughs> well, last thing then, Michael. Uh, anything that you want to plug quickly before you head off? Yeah, you know, be nice to each other. And um, people who are out there, if you if you'd like to be part of Four Thieves, um, we're, we're not hard to find. We're online. 
poke around fourth use vinegar collective dot uh, org and you can find me on twitter and all the usual places but you want to come give me a hottie or say howdy to the other people in the uh collective uh don't hesitate to do so awesome fantastic well cool awesome great thanks to you. Uh, yeah 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 this has been a great conversation yeah thanks, thanks so much for having me it's uh it's been great and if um if any of y'all want to get in touch i do go to the uk and new zealand and even mm-hmm. the so-called united states thanks. Oh, thanks for coming along thanks so much yeah thanks again uh great chatting bye bye uh last things to do uh we need to discuss the patreon again in in more depth this time um mule you started telling us all about the patreon before why don't you tell us all about the just one of the tiers this time the sprite mode oh that's right sophie and uh while i i will do that i'm not uh, stalling for time uh because i don't have that ready uh it's sprite mode put in the bookmark and the the sprite mode there it is the the sprite mode Uh, get started with your support for red planet by becoming a sprite it's only two dollars a month two pounds in the uk and in aotearoan dollars it is three three dollars right three three fifty three fifty close close uh and yeah, you get started with the spot for Red Planet by becoming a Sprite. Benefits include the sacred and forbidden knowledge <laughs> that you're helping the Red Planet team, early access to VODs, and access to Red Planet Discord. Uh, that's it. What's next, Sophie? What's next after Sprite mode? Well, that's Goblin mode. And I'm, you know, I like to talk slowly sometimes. And also type things into my browser. Yeah. And it's the cool and fun that to do. Is because I uh, am a goblin enjoyer. So if you become a goblin by getting goblin mode going on, which would cost you eight pounds fifty a month, I believe ten dollars a month, nineteen uh, New Zealand dollars a month, seventeen dollars fifty. Seven. Fuck. Okay. Mm. Uh, Change Yeah. Then 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 I would be enjoying you because you would be in goblin mode. Uh, everyone loves a goblin. We all get a little goblin mode from time to time. Complete your gobology by going goblin mode with everything that Mule already mentioned, as well as a pack of cool Red Planet stickers and access to exclusive Red Planet Discord hangouts. We are doing a uh, Star Trek Red Planet Discord hangout soon. Tim and I tried to do one, but we announced it way too late, so only two people showed up. They are officially the biggest Red Planet fans in the whole <laughs> world. Uh, but we will we will announce it better so more people can show up. Uh, we'll be watching uh, Darmok from TNG and probably um, from Beyond the Stars uh, or Far Beyond the Stars uh, from DS9 for now. But uh, I nice. think Kira and I will, will, will also plan some more DS9 watching <laughs> uh, in a bit. Speaking of Kira, Kira, what's after Goblin Mode? Oh, my god it's beast mode holy shit are you actually gonna go beast mode well then we can offer you all the stuff in the lower tiers and pin badges yep pin badges wear your excellent new red planet pin badge literally everywhere It is completely cool and good to do but what if i want to go even harder what if i'm kind of like sick like i'm like a sicko like like what what can i do with my money well if if indeed you are a sicko if um if you have been sickened adequately um you can jump on over to sicko mode uh that is is it it's 200 us 
right? 100. 100. 100. Oh, sorry. 100 US, but almost 200 New Zealand. It's 172 New Zealand dollars um, plus GST. And um, and something else in great <laughs> British pounds. Um, but uh, yeah, so if you support us this much, we can only really reasonably offer you offer you all of this stuff from the lower tiers, plus a very special thank you message at the end of every stream, um, which looks like this. Sorry, I just closed down the, the window that well, has like ABP and Narrowlon Starfire. Wow, thank you so much <laughs> yeah. for being sickos. I love what little sickos you are. Ha ha ha, yes, etc. I knew it was them, but I just, I thought maybe we got lucky and there'd be another, but. Um, <laughs> maybe cool. next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could be yeah. you, Chad. That could be you being read out as a lucky sicko. Um, cool. But yeah, that's, um, that's those are tears. Um, yep. At the moment, we're trying to get a little bit more so that we can afford to hire an editor to actually kind of um, be working on clips and things like that. And, you know, so we can produce additional content and um yeah takes take a little bit of of heat off um of conrad who has to do all of the stuff at the moment um but yeah so if you if you want to jump in there jump on the patreon that's what you'll be contributing towards um yeah i think that is um that's it for this week isn't it yeah well i have a question though tim oh where could people find you except for on red planet Mm, if they just can't get enough um they can find me understandable here. okay <laughs> they can find me here or over on youtube as conquest of dread or you can find me over on twitter as dread conquest um yeah and you can have a lovely time what about uh my sweet friend kira where can we find more more info about uh her well uh, my name is Kira Chats everywhere. So on Twitter, on Twitch, which is my main thing. I stream on Twitch, but I also on my uh, Not Safe for Work scandalous links, which I can't detail any further because of Twitch's terms of service. You can find on my link tree, linktra.ee slash Kira Chats. Um, also on Blue Sky, I'm Kira Chats and my Discord, which I'm now like a Discord goblin. It's pathetic. I'm constantly in there. Discord.gg slash Kira Chats. We always hang out there and watch stuff and... It's it's a rootin' tootin' time, let me tell you. So definitely join up. But what if I want to hang out with my friend Mule? Where can I find my friend Mule? Well, you could just shoot me a message because we're actual friends. Oh, that's so true. That, yeah, you could do that. But but what if the chatters want to hang out with you? They can what? never do that. You can. <laughs> but what if they never... want to see your other content? Oh yeah. Well, you just go to linktree.ee forward slash dj muel. All my stuff is there. Patreon. Please give me money. I need it to live. Um, and you get extra content if you're a patron as well. If you go, uh, I have my own goblin tier. But if you go above that and become an enlightened socialist here, then you get exclusive Patreon content. For example, uh, I just literally did this week a review, uh, sort of like a, a bunch of review reviews of all the movies I watched in May. Um, some of these include, uh, I'll just try and reel off these real quick. I listed them the other day. Uh, Jabberwocky, Species, X, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, forward slash Bogus, bogus Journey, uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man, Partners, Please Baby Please, Poltergeist 3, Slash Lorette, Party, 
uh, Pink Flamingos, <laughs> Army of Darkness, 1984, The Whale, and Malignant. So if you want to know why I think about any of those movies or all of them, uh, you could go to patreon.com forward slash DJ Mule uh, and, and it will be there in a couple of days. So uh, yeah, that's where you could get me. And next, uh, I want to know about Sophie. Sophie, where, where are we finding you? Where's that? Thanks for asking. I, oh my god, I just remembered the bass thing I did this week. Now, at the end of the fuck. Oh, <laughs> oh, I went to a screening called T-Girls on Film. It's a regular event that, that shows historic uh, trans women uh, in cinema. It was really cool. Uh, if you want to find me, you can go to linkedr.ee slash Sophie from Mars, all one word. Especially my Patreon, Money to Live, like Mule said, etc. Uh, I'm on YouTube. I make video essays about politics philosophy and media uh, i have something coming out called the world is not ending really soon really 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 soon it's a really good time to become a patron of me because i'll be putting up so much content soon thanks oh also awesome. oh is it over huh Are we what gone? what's happening Wait. Are you asking if we're off? What do you? Uh... We're still live. But why are you see saying you, that? See you next hey. week, everyone. No, really fast. One more thing. Okay, okay, okay. Fundraiser. I forgot to mention my fundraiser <laughs> is this July first on my channel this Saturday. Oh. Twitch.tv slash Kira Chats. Very, 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 very important if you want to do direct action for a black trans man trying to get out of deep south and also trying to, you know, his is owed immensely. Uh, for doing plenty of work to to help out Gamergate, please twitch.tv slash Kira Chats this Saturday. Goodbye. Now we can leave. There we go. Your excuse. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Red Planet. If you enjoyed the show, leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts and tell your comrades about it. Find more on the show, including where to watch live, at redplanetshow.com. Follow us on Twitter and TikTok at red underscore planet underscore TV. And there's even more at our Patreon, patreon.com slash red underscore planet. Our music is by Jasper Byrne. Red Planet is produced by Conrad Zimmerman in association with Mercenary Creative. See you next week.